Okie dokie, it's that time again. Put your party hats on. Let's get this party started. <laughs> Y'all ready for this? Okay, that was one of my goofier musical introductions. But I don't know. I bet, What was that CD? It was in the late 90s. And it was all kind of like stadium party anthems it seems like everybody had that and it was played at every like barbecue and summer sort of block party anyway now but i'm kind of just using to myself incomprehensibly all right uh hey richard hey what's up michael how you doing i'm good is that a pipeline in your pocket or are you just happy to see me uh, how long how long <laughs> you've been saving that one <laughs> about four minutes Okay, well that's that's good. Thinking on the fly. Uh, <laughs> so what do you? Uh, so what do you think? What do you think about the Seymour Hirsch piece? Uh, well, for one thing, it really is incredible. If you go all the way back to the seventies, okay, and I'm not saying that anybody should automatically trust something that is produced in 2023 because the journalist also produced worthwhile reporting in the seventies. Uh, but from the seventies onward to the 2020s, <laughs> pretty much every time Hirsch published something that was, let's say, inconvenient to people in positions of power or was counter narrative or, you know, engendered furious denials, uh, there were, there have been like virtually the same criticisms raised of the work usually around sourcing so people will all of a sudden be these journalistic uh, ethicists where you know they'll read the new york times and washington post mindlessly every day and they're chock full of anonymous officials you know whispering about this or that usually to advance a particular uh sort of convenient or helpful narrative um and pay no mind uh, but the minute that Seymour Hirsch publishes something and it uses anonymous sources, that's a big reason to get exercised and to, um, you know, belabor the uh, utility of that. So, okay, I mean, you can dwell on that if you so choose, but I do think it is worth pointing out that, you know, through from Nixon to Reagan to Bush to Obama – um, every time that one of Hirsch's stories, you know, unearthed something that was seen to, as inconvenient to whatever the incumbent government was, uh, it was accompanied by these like nitpicks and quibbles over his sourcing and uh, his journalistic methodology. So that's one thing. Um, and also, like when. I, I agree with critics of the people who might be seeming overly credulous about the story insofar as I don't think a good argument as to why Hirsch ought to be presumed credible is that he won a Pulitzer Prize for the My Lai Massacre story in whenever that was, 1974. I mean, that's sort of trivial. Uh, first of all, the Pulitzers are almost meaningless at this point, um, if they ever had much meaning at all. You know, the Washington Post and New York Times, as Trump likes pointing out, justifiably, uh, won Pulitzers 
for their uh, you know RussiaGate coverage, including stuff that Columbia Journalism Review article uh, last week, which is very exhaustive, um, basically showed to have been essentially you know fraudulent. I mean, it was known at the time, and or it was should have been known at the time more widely that those articles, even if they weren't outright fabricating claims. They were so directionally wrong and they were so kind of deceitfully constructed or misleadingly constructed that the idea that they would merit a Pulitzer is just a far. So I don't agree that because uh, Hirsch won a Pulitzer in 70, 1974, that means we ought to just believe everything that he ever produces. Um, the way I would put it is Hirsch has a demonstrable track record over decades of unearthing hugely revelatory, significant information and having that information later be corroborated and his reporting uh, vindicated. So that's my kind of rational assessment as to why I have a presumption of credibility that I'm operating with when I see something that he produces. So that was that would that would have been my attitude toward whatever Hirsch uh, published. Not to say that he was infallible or there isn't rational grounds for skepticism in certain respects. Um, but I find the fixation on kind of pretending as though all of a sudden in this one case you're super concerned about journalistic methodology. And super concerned about the, um, uh, you know, the nature of sourcing. Uh, it's a distraction. It's a deflection. It's uh, it's what people who don't want to address the substance const- constantly bring up, just to sort of pivot from the core of the issue. Even you know, Senator Chris Murphy, I was just replying to earlier uh, today or last night. He did the same thing. He just you know he's he's for some reason, links to this article that he says is not credible. So he puts it out on his official account on Twitter and says, oh, by the way, here, here's like X, Y, and Z thing that Hirsch uh, allegedly believes or claims from the past like 20 years that seems crazy to the naked eye, but is actually – and you know, most people who see this tweet aren't going to look into it thoroughly and assume that that means Hirsch is a crank – um, and so that's that somehow discredits this article just, you know, right off the bat. <clears throat> so, uh, and which is stupid. I mean, he, he says that, you know, it, Murphy was trying to discredit Hirsch by saying, oh, among the kooky things that Hirsch believes is that the United States military is training Iranian terrorists somewhere in Nevada. So, I mean, that sounds a little zany, right, if you just put it that way. Well, I mean, you actually go, can go find the article that was published in The New Yorker. So not on a Substack, or not that Substack is unreliable, but it was published in one of like the most you know esteemed American media outlets um, in 2012, where Hirsch actually does show that um, during the Bush administration there was this initiative within the Pentagon to um, train this the MEK like factions of the MEK that you know uh, group that used to be designated a terrorist organization by the State Department, but that was then remo- removed by Trump, I think, um, who are, you know, kind of weird cultists in Iran who are agitating 
for regime change all the time. Um, so that's the, all the meta stuff. On this, on, in terms of the actual substance of the article, I mean, it's, I think it's incredibly comprehensive, right? I mean, so I'm to believe that Hirsch staked his entire reputation at 85 years old <laughs> after decades on source uh, like a, a sourcing process that was so unreliable that I should just believe that the exhaustive detail that he provides as to how this operation came together, you're naming who was involved. It was, you know, Blinken, Sullivan, Newland, and then Biden gives the order, and then at the last minute he backtracks and asks if the um, debt detonation directive can come, you know, so a couple months later after this drill is held in the Baltic Sea. I mean, all that is just made up, supposedly, because some people don't like the sourcing of the guy who gets accused of having inadequate sourcing you know, um, standards every single time and then is vindic- – I mean, go, go to 2005, okay? Hearst does an article about how the Bush administration was drawing up plans, like in the state planning process um, of, for, for an operation to strike Iran. Um, you know, this is a couple years after the Iraq war started, obviously. Furiously denied at the time, Hirsch is ridiculed, the sourcing is ridiculed. Oh, it's just these anonymous whatever. <coughs> and then, you know, as time goes on, that's a, it's 100% corroborated that the Bush administration was in fact doing what, what Hirsch reported they were doing in terms of, in terms of planning, you know, uh, drawing up plans for a potential bombing operation in Iran that didn't happen. That with a, this plan suggested, um, but the plan did exist. I mean, Hirsch's reporting was accurate. So uh, I'm inclined, unless there's something absolutely glaring and something you know uh, indisputable to show otherwise, I'm inclined to you know have a baseline of. Accepting the fundamental credibility of the Hirsch report, and it also aligns with a lot of what people might have intuited was the case anyway, which it doesn't make it true or any truer, but it does kind of make it sort of consistent with what seemed like a common sense explanation. So, I don't know. What did you make of it? Uh, so, you know, I tried to look a bit into Hirsch's history. I mean, it's fair to say he's had hits and He's had misses too, right? I mean, he has like every. Not, not really. Like I mean, what are the misses supposedly? Well, I'm just looking at Wikipedia. So, who oh knows? please, right? I mean, Wikipedia says, is like now this political battleground where the most tendentious characterizations of stuff is intentionally put on there by you know this like organized brigade of, of essentially busybody trolls with an axe to grind. I mean, I was looking at his Wikipedia in real time yesterday. And, you know, the, the pro-Ukraine, you know, troll army was swarming it to discredit him as a conspiracy theorist. So, I mean, I'm not saying Wikipedia is 100% unreliable, but I wouldn't just go based on the Wikipedia well, summaries. Okay. Look yeah, into I, the actual, you know, articles. I mean, people yeah. say that he was, you know, he was his, like, Bin Laden reporting was discredited. No, it wasn't. In fact, the New York Times did a follow-up. So um, there was, uh, yeah. so, I mean, here's Wikipedia that claimed that the, there was an Indian prime minister who... Hirsch claimed uh, that was on the CIA payroll, 
And then there was a libel lawsuit. The guy sued him. They say Henry Kissinger and Richard Helms testified under oath that the guy never worked for the CIA. Um, and anyway, this was a libel case. And the Chicago jury, they found that, uh, well, to prove libel in the United States, you have to prove that they uh, they had published with intent to do harm or reckless disregard for truth. So it was dismissed, but um, because he did, they didn't prove he acted with malice, according to the jury. But according to this, people testified under oath he never worked for the CIA. Well, I mean, Henry show. Kissinger, I mean, how, I mean, Henry Kissinger didn't work for the CIA. I mean, Henry Kissinger denying yeah. something. Well, that's true. Richard Even if he Helms. denied it truthfully, it doesn't mean that yeah. the guy well, never worked Hel- for the Richard CIA Helms or never had some Richard sort of Helms. arrangement with the CIA. Richard Helms was, I mean, the head of the CIA. Um, I, I right. think that but, I mean, but there, I mean, the thing is, I mean, the reason why Hirsch often gets these furious denials, and sometimes they might even be truthful denials in that the person making the denial actually thinks that they're truthfully denying the thing. Okay. Is that yeah, the, I mean, okay. the government is so sprawling and has so many factions in it that sometimes yeah, different well, factions possible. don't know the I mean, Okay, well, I mean, this thing wasn't proven. Like, it wasn't vindicated. Like, it wasn't proven false, maybe. But it, it looks so who knows, right? Um, you know, who knows if this was a true story or not. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think there's got to be some things in, in that category. So, I don't know. I don't know, but I don't have strong feelings about Hirsch's um, credibility. Now, this... Uh, this story, I mean, it's, uh, it's, you talked about the detail, but it's one source and it's a lot of detail, which is strange. It seems like this would be a lot for one source to know, unless it's Blinken or it's Sullivan or it's Biden. I mean, it's telling you the, the, uh, it's telling you the, uh, meetings of the White House. It's giving you the timeline. It's telling you, uh, you know, the, what's going on with the Navy guys. It's got the sources within the Navy guys. And then it's got, you know, the guys who are doing the deep sea diving. And then it's got sources within the White House. And you think that's compartmentalized, right? The, how does one source have all that? I mean, the, the Navy guys are not like, they don't know like the details of all the White House planning, um, I suppose, right? So it's, it's, it's odd. Do you, don't you find, well, I mean, it's a, good a que- it's a good question. But I mean, when he says he has, when people say he has one source, it doesn't mean that his only information that he's going on is what one individual just tells him verbally, right? I mean, there could be corroborating material supplied or like a wider sort of universe of information that he's basing these well, like descriptions he could of things say, on. He could say, I, rev- I reviewed this document or something. He never says anything like that. No, he doesn't say it. Um, but I don't know. I mean, so... Are we to believe that he's making it up? I mean, well, that's I would, the thing. if he was making it up, I would say he, he'd say he had more than one source. So yeah, I, I don't believe he's making that up uh, because people will seize on that and say one source. But the, is the source credible? I, I don't know. Um, I think we can't say with certainty if we don't know who it is, but we can say with certainty that, or at least I can say, that if I'm going to have a level of trust in anyone to assess whether a source is credible. Like anyone in the United States, like Hirsch is going to be like among the top handful of people that I would trust to make that assessment. Um, now doesn't mean that I would give anyone blind trust, uh, but that's like, I think a reasonable way of looking at it because it's been borne out Oh, time and time again, that his assessments in that regard are trustworthy. So, um, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> this idea that because it's not like 
he's it's like five thousand words, right? It's very detailed. Mm-hmm. Um, no, he didn't specify documents that were provided or whatever, but um, you know, there are ways to phrase things that kind of don't give full insight into the scope of how the sourcing was arranged because to do that might be a tip-off, right, or might uh, compromise the source's anonymity. So um, I wouldn't overstate yeah, how I mean, limited no, it is to have just one search. Let's say, it's, let's say it is Biden, right? I mean, journalists implausible. If you read the New York Times or Washington Post, they, I, I, you know, they, they, it would be rare they would say one sort. They usually tell you something like, according to documents reviewed by the, they'll say something like that. They won't say, first of all, they usually, they won't, usually won't do a comprehensive report, um, you know, in my experience, uh, based on one source, right? They at least will have a few. And then they, if they have other information, they will at least hint at what that other information is. They just don't tell us. They usually don't just tell a story without anything, right? I mean, that, that's what this is. There's this one source, and then there's nothing, but there's tons and tons of detail. Um, you know, and it's odd. I don't know. Um, you know, it's not it's not impossible to believe that this uh, happened. Um, you know, it fits with a lot. I mean, it's not, uh, uh, you know, probably makes more sense the Americans did it than the that the Russians did it. Uh, so, you know, I'm even inclined to, to believe this. Um, but I don't know. The way it's reported is, is, I think, odd. Well, if you want to say that the way it's reported is odd, then that would apply to virtually everything Hirsch has ever done. <laughs> and okay, well, I, I, haven't read, I haven't read tons of Hirsch, but okay. I mean, if like, but it's, it's outside of sort of, like when you do a comprehensive report, usually there's more, there's more about the sourcing. I mean, that's, that's what I'm saying. Maybe not in Hirsch's stuff, but in other people's stuff, there t- t- tends to be. Well, I don't know. I mean, the New York Times will have. I mean, it depends. I mean, sometimes an anonymous official will say and the something, other thing about and the then the New York that, Times that's a, yeah. is like it's believable. Like, okay, so who would be in position to know like all the like when the New York Times is one source? Like, it could be Blinken or like Sullivan, right? So, like, you know, those people might talk to the New York Times, like, so you know, like like Bill Burns or like uh, Blinken is not talking to Hirsch, right? So he's got one. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be so sure. I mean, mm, Hirsch, you... well, I mean, Hirsch has had, <clears throat> I forget who now, but it might've been like Ford's secretary of defense or something. It turned out that, you know, that was one of his sources because the guy okay. died and stuff. I mean, so he's had, I mean, I wouldn't underestimate how, much of an institution, Hirsch has been in Washington D.C. for for ages. Okay, but well, yeah, but the question um, is, what's their motivation? What, what's their motivation? Then that means they want him to, they wanted this out, right? And so that's well, interesting. And so we could wonder why that is. I don't know. Let's say that they think. Well, I mean, there could be a bunch of different and, and, and motivations. One of the motivations could be that they fear further escalation, so they want to make the public aware of the gravity of the escalation that's already occurred, so that maybe there's pushback and the you know the trajectory maybe. of the policy is modified that's maybe. one potential explanation maybe um, or you know you could, you could imagine others so I don't yeah know. you could imagine others although like then why wouldn't you just give it to the new york times in that case because people will people will push back against hirsch well if it was the new york times i think people would be more inclined to say okay like we can we could trust it so that's also i mean that's also a question the motivation you know the motivation they go like if this is a person in a position to know is big enough, like, you know, why are they doing this? Um, and why Hirsch? I mean, that's, that's all interesting. I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, and well, because the New York times and the Washington post, like even today in that, um, 
Washington Post article that um, you sent me, which I, t- I tweeted, people should, should read it, but it basically shows another layer of intimate operational involvement yeah. by the Pentagon. A and exa- A good example. Yeah. It says three Ukrainian sources and one American source, and then like a few other American sources like either deny it or they don't deny it or they elaborate on it or they refuse to comment. So that, that's usually that. I mean, it's usually... Well, I was going to say, but even in that article at the, at the very end, the Washington Post says that after the due to the Pentagon's request or due to some officials' request, yeah, yeah. they're they not going to name the base right. on NATO soil that these American targeting operations are being run from. So just to summarize this article, um, according to Ukrainian officials that the U.S., that uh, Washington Post, the Washington Post um, spoke to, one of them said everything, every time that they fire a rocket, maybe he was kind of using rhetorical flourish, but like virtually, it's safe to say that virtually every time the Ukraine military fires a rocket, right, one of the, from these HIMARS systems that the U.S. has provided, the U.S. is um, basically controlling it, controlling the rocket fires by providing the um, location data. And so like whenever the Ukraine military wants to fire a rocket, they go through, it's all done through the U.S. in this base somewhere on NATO territory. I mean, it seems probable it's Poland or I don't know, or uh, other than that, Romania. Um but I, I mentioned that because the Washington Post did something that Hirsch might not do, given their different sort of standards and how they approach these issues in their you know, journalistic styles, which is that they withheld the name of the base for, for, at the request of the Pentagon. Hirsch probably wouldn't do that, right? Um, so why would you go to Hirsch with this information rather than the Washington Post? Well, because he's probably not going to be as squeamish and the process isn't going to be as bureaucratic and um, sort of uh, you know, opaque as if you were to go give the information to the New York Times or Washington Post, where there's like a whole set of like political considerations that they take into account or like they have to, you know, they withhold things in the name of national security at times. Um, so you know, that's a reason why people would go to Hirsch. Uh, so. Or because they just like Hirsch. And they or they trust him more than they trust the New York Times, which is also, I think, you know, yeah. reasonable given the context. Maybe, maybe they just like Hirsch. Yeah. Okay. So you can. It's interesting to think Blinken or Biden, <laughs> giving having this bird's eye view of everything that's going on and, and talking to Hirsch. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, also this would be a big indictment of the rest of the media because, uh, you know, this is going on within. Uh, you know, this is, you know, this is, there's a lot going on and this is not leaking to anyone else. I mean, it's very strange. So Hirsch only has one source and you know, that this is like the dog that didn't bark and stuff for the rest of the media. I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe I don't know what to make of that exactly. You know, so a lot of things don't get well, out. Well, I mean, you had, uh, you did see starting in November or December, I think stories here and there in things, the, yeah. in there was one Washington post article. And I think there were, there was a, something in, Der Spiegel, and maybe something in the Times of London, basically uh, giving a preliminary assessment that Russia is not believed to have been responsible, right? So you saw sort of like a trend in this direction prior to this story. So it's not – the story isn't consistent with – is not inconsistent with those prior reports. So it's like directionally – 
congruous. Um, so, you know, maybe something will come out. I mean, it's only been a day, so yeah, it takes a while to report the stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I you know, it's not a, it, you know, it'll be, it'll be, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. Uh, it'll be interesting where this goes. Um, okay, so let's assume let's assume it's true. Let's just stipulate that it's accurate, right? That the story is a truthful representation of what actually happened with the Nord Stream pipeline bombing. What do you make of it then? Um, I think that it is. Um, I think it was always the most likely scenario was either the U.S. or uh, some U.S. ally. Um, you know, it's it's. Uh, what do I what do I make of it? I mean, it's um, you know, it's a level of sort of ruthlessness and sort of you know willing to sort of bend the rules of the so-called international order uh, that is maybe a little further than people thought the American administration was prepared to go, or um, Biden personally, so yeah, who's like supposed to be sober and more restrained and yeah, I mean, this is like because very... I mean, Biden personally gave the order. Yeah, Biden personally gave the order. Burns and um, Sullivan uh, were involved, according according to this. Um, and you know, this is a level of sort of planning and coordination and long term strategy. I mean, it makes me think the Biden administration is actually more competent and probably uh, smarter than people uh, a lot of people think, and you know, probably more willing to sort of step on the toes of European allies and. Uh, you know, uh, push forward with the war effort um, a lot more than people think. And also, you know, the ability to pull stuff off in Washington and, uh, you know, keep it under wraps until, you know, all this time is also actually quite impressive. Yeah, well, it wouldn't be the first time that something was kept under wraps. Um, Yeah. (laughs) You know, it doesn't have to be, people think it's a uh, conspiracy theory or something that there could be a group of people who are abiding by certain secrecy uh, expectations but I mean <laughs> we're only getting uh, information about the John F. Kennedy assassination now 60 years later that nobody knew at the time um, so and it's the idea that that alone makes it implausible I think is silly I mean Mike Lee the senator from Utah he he tweeted that um, it's if if it's false, it's slander. If it's true, it's an act of war. So I mean, if it's an act of let's if we're stipulating that it's true, and stipulating that Mike Lee is right, which I, I think is hard to argue that it's an act of war. Um, you know what then? I mean, it's I, can you put that can of worms? Can you put those worms back in the can, <laughs> genie back in the bottle? Uh, well, I mean, if if. Russia didn't do it themselves, then they know that, you know, the Westerners did it to them, right? Uh, so, like, if, if if this is true, then the Russians know already, right? So whether, you know, cannon, you know, put the worms back in the can or whatever, I, I don't know if that, you know, if that, if that matters. Um, you know, it's an interesting question if this is a source, for, if this is, a, like, we speculated, like, a really top-level source within the administration, you know, then we ask the question of why. Well, maybe you think that maybe well, I mean, what you said was that it would create pressure for de-escalation. I, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> that, that, I guess now that I think about that, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, I, 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 I'm not endorsing that necessarily as the real reason behind it. It's or just it one, speculating as to one potential mode. Well, if you put this next to the, the this um, Washington Post story, um, 
maybe it's it's sort of the opposite. It's like we're escalating and we're showing that like we don't care and we don't care who knows it and like we you know we're sort of shoving it in your face that we're doing this stuff and we're going to keep doing it right. It's, it seems like it could be the opposite and like maybe to give it to her, she's like an anti-war reporter. Um, to get it out there would be like a, uh, you know, that would be a smart move because people wouldn't suspect it. Yeah, I was just going to go to Andrew early because he said that he had a theory, but then he dropped off for some reason. So Andrew, uh, Andrew, he's the, I, I still see him. Oh no, he's gone. He's at the he's at the back. He's on the back of the line. Okay. Um, Sorry, I, I don't know. All right, and, Andrew, give, you, give us your theory. Briefly, I think it could have been a naval officer, and I think the reason for that is that there is an interest in shifting the military attention from Ukraine to China for the Navy. And uh, if he didn't agree with this operation, he might have told Hirsch about it because he wants to, no pun intended, sink it somehow, or it's already been done so sloppily that people have been publicly speculating that it was the U.S., even in the Washington Post and the New York Times. And a key line at the end of the article is that the source said that it was essentially technically done correctly, but the only problem with the operation is that it was done in the first place, which to me implies we could never hide this, no matter how well we did this operation. So that lends me to think it's not a spooky person that came up with it, it might be a military person because of the in-depth knowledge they may have. I'm assuming this is all true, obviously. Yeah, and that, just to interject real quick, I mean, that would stand to reason in a sense, or it's a plausible theory, because the loca- location where the operation was apparently ran from, um, or where the divers came from who executed it, is a Navy um, yep. sort of Diving center in uh, Panama City, Florida, the U.S. Navy's diving and salvage center, um, and that's what that's what Hirsch leads the story with in you know, describing, which most people n- might not be aware of. But you know, if yeah, coordination too between the it's the CIA that comes up with this in this right, and they get the Navy guys to do it right, and then you get the uh, you get the you get the Norwegians um, uh, like you know sort of in on it. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, the detail, I mean, yeah, I mean, if, look, if this turns out to be not true, and he just went with this based on one source, like, if, like, this is, this is very discrediting. It's got to be true, I mean, for his, the sake of his reputation, right. because, like, just run with this. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's never well, that, been, I mean, I don't think, people can correct me if I'm wrong, may, I mean, I've read Hirsch for years, obviously, but I don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of everything he's ever done off the top of my head. But I can't think of anything where, If it was inaccurate, something that he reported, it, the I mean, if the sort, if the one source was not reliable, then the entire thing would collapse, right? In exactly this fashion, or maybe I'm not wording that right. Meaning, if his if his discretion or if his judgment is so off that the source itself is unreliable, then the entire narrative apparently would collapse, right? Um, I don't remember that ever being so dramatically true as with this particular article, right? So I mean, it's like if I'm, – I'm not putting it correctly, but in other words, it just really stretches the bounds of credulity for me to think that the, there wouldn't have been like 100% unassa- unassailable due diligence done on the reliability of whatever the source was. I mean, remember, there are people who would have to be in positions – to know that this was happening, who we probably 
don't really have much familiarity with in terms of like the sort of obscure roles that they provide. I mean, I mean that they occupy. I mean, there's a you know special warfare command within the navy that runs you know special operations and such. So it could be a commander there or whomever. Um, so. Yeah, it doesn't have to be like somebody whose name we know. So tell me about the Bin Laden to... reporting. I mean, you said it wasn't discredited. Was it? I mean, was it opposite of discredited? Was it credited? I mean, was it? Was it? Was what, 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 what's your understanding of what, what he said and what, what happened there? Yeah. Um, if you uh, if you Google, there's a New York Times article that I just pulled up. Um, type in. The detail in Seymour Hersh's Bin Laden story that rings true. This is the New York Times Magazine. Okay. Uh, 2015. It, um, it basically corroborates that um, this, this reporter says, when I, to, when I was researching my book, I learned from a high-level member of the Pakistani intelligence service at the ISI, have been hiding Bin Laden and ran a desk specifically to handle him as an intelligence asset. After the book came out, I learned more that it was indeed the Pakistani, Ar- Pakistani Army uh, Brigadier, all the senior officers are, uh, who told the CIA where, the, where bin Laden was hiding and that bin Laden was living there with the knowledge and protection of the ISI. So, I mean, so I mean, that's like the thrust of what Hirsch reported, right? That it wasn't this dramatic story that was instantly fed to the media that led to the raid on bin Laden where you had a you know, a uh, helicopter flying into Pakistani airspace out of nowhere and doing this dramatic raid. Um, but it was like, you know, carefully coordinated um, or, you know, factions of the Pakistani uh, intelligence services basically served, up, served Bin Laden up to the U.S. Um, and uh, it also wasn't like through gumshoe CIA field work that the... Um, yeah, that that his location was found. There was a it was just a walk in, meaning a Pakistani intelligence officer walked into a CIA outpost and mm. told them where he where Bin yeah. Laden was. Well, didn't Pakistan arrest the doctor that supposedly there was supposedly a doctor who, uh, who was involved right? Who was like running like the, supposedly the vaccine program? Um, yeah. that the U.S. used to yeah. kind of gather so, intelligence. Who, yeah, I mean, so it's a bit. So what's the story there? What, what was that doctor? Why would why would Pakistan? Well, I mean, it's, 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 it seems like that. I got that's like the fall guy, right? Um, yeah. So I don't know. But the point the yeah. point is that Hirsch, you know, core aspects of Hirsch's reporting, you know, that were furiously denied when that story came out, um, were later you know corroborated in bits, bits and pieces, and um, you know, the, the the dishonest part of it is that. People who are trying to discredit Hirsch will say that he's a 9-11 conspiracy theorist or he thinks the raid didn't happen. I saw people saying that. He thinks the bin Laden raid just didn't happen or he thinks that bin Laden was behind, wasn't involved in 9-11. I mean, Hirsch has never said anything like that. He's probed the, the, the like, uh, zero dark 30 narrative that was initially kind of just pumped out for popular consumption about that raid. And... Um, I don't know of any fact so, that he reported that was ever disproven or really called into serious question. So I'm like, yeah, I'm just remembering the doctor story. Uh, now that I think about it, the uh, 
the doctor just he just confirmed that the children were Bin Ladens, right? So it's it's, it's consistent with a walk-in from the right. uh, ISI, and then they use the doctor. So that's not necessarily uh, inconsistent. Um, the doctor, I don't think, was the original. Yeah, the doctor, I don't think, was the original source for for anything. Um, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think we'll, I think we'll find out. Yeah, I think this is one of those. I mean, there's no reporting on. You know, I mean, it's interesting. Why isn't? Why aren't they trying to make us think that it's the Russians, right? Why aren't there anonymous sources going and saying, "Oh, we have data of the Russians"? Are they like, right? Are they like honest? I mean, do will they like do something like this, but then they won't like uh, do like a psyop to make it to make the media think it's the Russians and tell people that? I don't know. Right. I mean, don't you think that if there are even the most scant reasons, or the most even if there were even was even the most scant evidence, or you know, questionable. Or peripheral evidence that Russia was culpable. Yeah, that that everyone would be rushing to highlight that those pieces of evidence to claim that Russia was responsible, but they're not even doing that. I yeah. mean, after the first like maybe week or two, um, you know, within the first week or two, there were assertions that Russia was culpable. I, you know, I dug up Marco Rubio going on CNN and just saying, "Oh, it's of course it's common sense that Russia was responsible. That's the only explanation that." stands to reason, according to him. Um, and he sort of like coyly alluded to receiving a briefing on it. But according to Hirsch, the whole logic behind the way this operation was organized was that, was that by, uh, Congress could be bypassed and didn't need to be briefed. Um, so Rubio wouldn't have received a briefing, <laughs> um, even though he kind of insinuated that he had on TV. Um, so you had that kind of chatter early on, but ever after about like a week or two, it seems like not even really an attempt has been made to accuse Russia. So, I mean, then who did it? Can I, I suggest mean, a it's now been long enough. Yeah. Yeah. A motivation for that is that if we made it say we made it clear somehow that it was Russia, then there's more of an impetus to do something about it. Whereas if it remains an open question that just fades away, what then it seems less, uh, less of a um, pressing matter if it's not concluded that Russia, whereas if, uh, excuse me, if it was concluded that Russia did it, then then the obvious next question the media is going to be asking is, well, then what, what next? So then if the administration did do this, then they would be quite happy with just leaving it an open question. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that's right. And then also, Richard, I mean, this is just circumstantial evidence and isn't obviously dispositive of anything, but it does sort of kind of give sort of more uh, kind of thematic credibility to the narrative as we now understand it via Hirsch. I mean, Victoria Newland making these statements that are not just like aspirational that the Nord Stream pipeline will no longer be operational if the war is launched by Russia, but are like statements of certitude that the, you know, rest assured the United States will ins- will make absolutely certain that the Nord Stream pipeline is not able to be operated if Russia launches the invasion. Biden said that in that one clip that's pretty widely circulated now. And Newland, even just like uh, two weeks ago or so, before Congress, <coughs> you know, said to Ted Cruz, oh, I join you in being very satisfied and appreciative that 
the Nord Stream pipeline is, a, is a, currently a hunk of you know scrap metal on the bottom of the sea. I mean, why say stuff like that? It seems like they're maybe. I mean, this is speculation, but it seems like one of like the rationales behind how they've handled this is just to kind of you know give these uh, insinuations and these sort of wink and a nod type moves to allude to the U.S. having done it as like an intimidation thing or as like a coercive sort of almost diplomatic tactic without, you know, obviously verifying it and just kind of keep but giving it the patina of ambiguity. Um, because otherwise, I mean, what are we to make of those <laughs> statements? Yeah, I think you're, I think you're right. The more I think about it, the more you put it together, it does seem like they're like gloating over it. They're not accusing the Russians really. Um, yeah, I mean, the Russian from the beginning, it made more sense that it was the U.S. rather than uh, it was Russia. The whole Russia thing doesn't make sense. There's the absence of the uh, any kind of talk in the media about you know any evidence that anyone's seen that Russia has done it. Even some talk that it's you know there is you know Russians are you know they're reporting that the Russians are paying for it are, pay, are estimating uh, what it costs to repair the pipeline, but. I mean, I don't know. The, the funny thing that they they want to repair the pipeline. I mean, it's very funny. Like, I can't imagine Germany. I can't imagine Europe actually wanting to go back to Russian oil. Um, so yeah, I, I think that yeah, this is this is credible. I mean, I, I, it is a credible theory. I mean, it's not a ridiculous thing. It's just you know, there's the questions we talked about 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 the uh, the reporting itself. Yeah, and then you have the um, you know that former. Polish foreign minister who is now a um, member of the European Parliament who did the very cryptic tweet. Um, well, I guess maybe not, maybe cryptic isn't the wrong word, but the very, um, you know, notable tweet where he has this, the, the screenshot of the, the surface of the sea with the, you know, bubbles coming out where the explosion happened and said, thank you, USA. Does that mean he knows that there was this operation. I mean, I don't know. I mean, there could be some knowledge of it within certain, you know, intel- Polish or whatever intelligence services that he's privy to. Um, but why was that guy thanking the United States? And that, so that's a high-level person, right? I mean, his wife is Anna Applebaum, um, who is this, you know, think tank, you know, at the Atlantic-type uh, operator. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot um, of these I mean, I haven't, are... we, we have, still haven't gotten a good explanation for that, so... I don't know. There's just a lot of and there's so yeah. there's a lot of weird circumstantial stuff that is like, also pointing this direction. I don't, I don't put a lot into that because that guy he wouldn't like they wouldn't tell him the day that it happened, right? I, I assume that this was kept enough under wraps that just some Polish even if he is Ad Applebaum's husband, like I don't think he would know right away. So you figure he just assumes, right? He just sees it, says this makes sense, says thank you USA, right? I think that's like, most likely what happened there. Yeah. Um, one more point on this, and then we'll go to the callers. Um, I don't know. Did Trump do anything? Let's say again, it's true. Just stipulate for the sake of argument here that everything in the Hirsch report is true, which is kind of my working assumption, unless I see any convincing evidence to the contrary. Um, but did Trump do anything quite as brazen as this? I mean, the only thing that really comes to mind is the Soleimani. Assassination, which yeah, was, which was brazen. I think that's bigger. It's it's one of the biggest 
individuals that are killing a person, a government leader, I think, is probably in a different category, yeah. Right, but this is up there. I mean... Yeah, it's this, up there. This takes uh, gall. <laughs> um, in other words, for all the kind of talk about how Trump um, was this kind of reckless wild card, which is true in certain respects, um, and then that being counterposed with, like, the steady, calm leadership of Biden or if, like, you know, the kind of Democratic... Uh, adults in the room or whatever uh, to have done this with all the risk that entails, especially, you know, Iran, as far as we know, was not a uh, nuclear p- uh, power at the time. Um, and for all, I mean, even if, uh, even if you read what the source said to Hirsch, um, you know, there were warnings that if this were to come out, I mean, it's an act of war and it, would be a political nightmare and it has all these kinds of risks associated with it. And they, you know, accepted that enormous risk and, and did it, you know, in the context of Biden warning that, you know, nuclear apocalypse is potentially on the horizon. I mean, it's, it seems like among the most more reckless things that I could recall, um, or among the most, let's say brazen presidential uh, actions that I can recall. And I, I think at the very least it should, puncture some of these sort of lazy assumptions about how sober and serious the, you know, foreign policy um, decision makers are in the administration. Like they, you know, they're cool, calm, collected. They have a handle on everything. Really, they don't. I mean, I mean, there, there, there's no evidence that they really do. It seems like a lot has spiraled out of their control um, or at least beyond what you would expect if they really were such competent managers. Why do you say, this kind say, of seems to be the popular impression. Why do you say that? Why do you say that it's been out of their control? Uh, well, a number of reasons. I mean, look at the eth- efficacy of the sanctions regime against Russia. It seems to have backfired. I mean, I just saw, read a report yesterday that um, India has increased its imports of Russian crude oil by literally 1,900%, okay, since January of 2022. So India, who we've talked about before on this you know, show about in terms of their role geopolitically, has so bucked what American sort of entreaties have been with regard to how they should now be operating vis-a-vis Russia, given the Ukraine war. They've gone in such the other direction that they've basically made Russia their number one supplier. Not basically, they have made Russia their number one supplier of crude oil. One of the, and that's one of obviously the, the contributing factors as to why um, Russia was actually upgraded by the IMF a few weeks ago in terms of their growth forecast for 2023 and is, you know, going to have a growing, they're going to undergo economic growth at a greater rate in 2023 than Germany and um, the UK. Who who reported it? With the UK actually having negative growth. Who's estimating estimating that? The International Monetary Fund, IMF. They put out their estimates. They're going to say Russia's going to have a higher growth than uh, Germany in 2023? (coughs) They're going to have a higher rate of economic growth in 2023 than Germany and the UK, and the UK actually has negative growth. Uh, um, I'd like to. I'd like to see. That's. Uh, 
Uh, okay, so I see grid news latest by Bricks Information Portal. Let's see. Let's see. Uh, here, I'll I'll, uh, I'll pull it up just so you can see it. I'll send you. I did a tweet on it, so I'll send it to you. This is the exciting part of the show where I'm searching for stuff. Yeah. It's better to, you know, take our time and know what we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I take the, I take the point that the Russia and the economy. Remember when they used to say that airplanes wouldn't fly within Russia? Was it, did that ever turn out to be true? I'm assuming it's false. I haven't heard of it, right? They said that basically that Russia needed spare parts from the West, and eventually, like, they would just not be able to fly um, domestically. Uh, this was like a conventional wisdom in, like, the first month of the war. Um, and I don't think that's happened, right? Um, say it again. People were saying, like, in the first month of the war, um, that Russia basically needed spare parts for its airplanes from abroad. And because of the sanctions, like, there would be no uh, flights, like, there would be no domestic flights within Russia because the, uh, you know, they wouldn't be able to get spare parts and then the, the flights wouldn't work. But, no, I just looked it up right now. It looks like you can, get a, you can buy a f- flight from Moscow to St. Petersburg uh, for Sunday, February 12th uh, for, from starting at $31. That's pretty, that's pretty good. Um, if this is real. So, yeah, I, yeah, that, that seems like that wasn't true. No, the economy, I mean, the Russian economy, by most accounts, is not doing as poorly as uh, people thought. Uh, but, you know, I, I always, I, like I told you before, I thought the, I think the weapons, um, you know, I think they're, like, consistently providing more weapons to Ukraine uh, without getting, like, you know, escalation or getting the U.S. involved directly in a shooting war. I mean, I think that they've sort of managed that in a reasonable way. Well, if they blew up the pipeline, then they are involved in like something called something that resembles. Well, I mean, one. but yeah, I mean, they uh, they did that, right? But they didn't, uh, you know, like the, the worry was always Russian escalation, right? And the fact that they're doing all this, so like pushing Russia back and not getting uh, the escalation, people fear. Okay, I right. found that I sent you the uh, growth projections. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I oh here's IMF. Okay, that's the IMF itself with a gray check mark, which means official. Uh, USA 1.4, Russia 0.3. Okay, well that's not great, but yeah, okay, but it's 0.3 percent growth. Well, it's higher than okay. Germany. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Germany's not doing great either. Uh, that's true. UK is not. And the doing UK, great. which is the has negative growth, so it's in. Recession. Yeah, I mean, but it, it, it's a lot. You, we picked the two countries in Europe that are uh, going to do the worst, right? And we said Russia. Okay, but let's. Have- but if this if this fabulous sanctions regime. It was being touted as this landmark achievement for the Biden administration because they brought together all the allies and they were all on the same page and they were doing these unprecedented sanctions to let Russia know that we mean business. I mean, if you had said in March of last year that it would result in Russia having greater growth in its economy than the UK and Germany, which are you know, two of the central prongs of that whole sanctions enterprise i mean what would you have thought yeah and and, and then also there's no i mean what evidence is there that it's hobbled well, look, or impeded the well, look, russian look, war look, effort at all first i mean first of all i mean these are still projections i mean 2023 is only uh is only two months it's only two months old <laughs> it's a month and a half old 
2022, I mean, you look at 2022 and Russia uh, was minus 2.2. Russia is the worst of any of these uh, these countries, right? Um, so, you know, we, I mean, that's just a projection. You know, who knows if they're, if they, you know, if this projection will even be right. Um, so I don't know. I mean, they're, uh, you know, it's not like Russia's economy is doing great. Like you could, in a, in a projection, you could see that it's doing better than two countries uh, in Europe. But, you know, I'm not that impressed with that. Okay, but <laughs> Germany and the UK are not subject to this it's, it's, glorious it's, sanctions regime. Twenty twenty three is a month is a month old. I mean, okay, but, but, but they also, but they, I mean, I don't have this in front of me by the moment. But they did also uh, up the revise upward the projections for two thousand twenty two for, for Russia, uh, meaning yeah. that the economic um, downturn that they were projected to have in two thousand twenty two was you know, not uh, worn out. You know, there was an interesting paper on, um, you know, it's getting in the weeds a bit of calculating GDP growth. But, the, you know, you know how, like, sometimes they measure uh, economic activity by, like, skylighting. They look at the uh, from the uh, satellite to see how much light they're coming from countries. Um, yeah, yeah. But anyways, so. people, yeah, <laughs> people do that. Yeah. And what they found is when they match that to GDP official numbers, they found that dictatorships actually they 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 seem like the democracies are sort of consistent with the light data, and dictatorships seem to report more um, economic growth than you actually see from the night lights, right? So, you know how truthful is Russia being in wartime about the data? I mean, the data comes from them, right? Uh, it's probably not completely made up. So I don't know. I mean, Russia's. I mean, nobody's fleeing to Russia anytime soon. Um, look, I, I think you're right that they didn't. It's not collapsing, you know. We're not hearing like the 1990s, like people are, you know, eating each other, you know, eating, you know, they're, I don't know, they're starving, you know. They don't have the the shelves in the stores are empty, like you know, you're not hearing that. And obviously, it didn't it didn't collapse. What they, I think, the more important thing, though, I think more important than that for the sanctions, what they were trying to do, and like the indication of how they're working is the um, uh, the fact that they're they haven't run out of missiles, right? They kept saying they're going to run out of missiles. The fact that they're still able to make missiles, um, that, you know, that's... And not only that, we're now getting all these, war- these um, you know, uh, hair-on-fire warnings that a giant new offensive is yeah. imminently supposed although, to begin with, although, like, in a week. Although the, the media is not very... It doesn't seem... The, they, the conventional wisdom isn't that it's, like, going to be great. I mean, most places I've seen, they say, oh, it's going to, you know, it's going to fizzle out. Uh, so we'll see, right? It's supposed to be, like, you know, imminent... Uh, we'll see. Yeah, you're right. But, uh, I, you know, but, you know, I don't know. Like, <laughs> they, they're managing, their Biden administration is managing better than the, uh, Bush administration managed the, um, the war in Iraq. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a high bar. <laughs> yeah. That was real. You want to see real government confidence. And I don't yeah, know. I mean, of course. I, I don't know, like, how, what you really make that comparison and the differences. In the situation, it's not like a ground invasion that the U.S. launched, you know, preemptively. It's a whole other sort of set of circumstances. And, you know, the worst case scenario is worse here than it would have been in Iraq, right? I mean, if the escalatory ladder actually reaches its peak or close to its peak, that's conceivably a lot worse than anything that happened in Iraq. So, like, the uh, upper bounds of the danger... I guess is what I'm saying, are actually more um, grave here than mm. with the Bush administration in Iraq, not to diminish that, but um, anyway, okay, so let's go to uh, let's go to callers, because why the hell not? 
Hey Gator. Hey Michael, how you doing? Hi Richard. Hi. Um, yeah, I think you, you, you guys um, have done a... I agree with you with your take on how to look at Hirsch. I think he's got the thing for me as an... Um, why, why is he... Why at 85? Is he doing the job that he's doing that literally, assuming that it's accurate enough, let's say it's 85% accurate, at 85 he is doing the job of an investigative journalist, which puts to shame pretty much all of the journalists. You know, and one thing I would say is that Richard's asking this question of like, why why would the NYT or the WAPO not pick this up? Well, because they would never pick it up. They would spike this because they're totally establishment outlets. You would never take a story like this to the WAPO. I mean, um, as I pointed out in the comments, if you look at Hirsch's publication track record, 2013, what did he do? Published Syria, Duma, OP, um, false, the false flag chemical weapons attack. He was right about that. Where did it get published? The London Review of Books. Where did his 2015 um, uh, OSB um, a bombshell go? The London Review of Books. Why? Because no establishment outlet will touch him because they're all captured. That's why he's on substance. Well, I think also what that has to do with is there was a Democratic administration in power. And so he... Um, you know, the burden that publications like The New Yorker, where he would have published up to 2013, was seen as much higher to report on anything that would be unflattering to, like, the Ob you know, Obama. Whereas under Bush, I mean, he was doing some pretty um, far-reaching reportage. And, you know, it was the same sourcing issues as came afterwards, and if that's what you want to quibble with. But because the liberal intelligentsia which includes the New Yorker, was so arrayed against Bush, they were willing to accept his, you know, uh, idiosyncrasies uh, because it um, redounded to the disadvantage of, of the Bush administration. And, and uh, not only was Hirsch's methodology praised, in, you know, within the liberal commentariat when he was reporting on, like, Abu Ghraib or the secret Iran programs or whatever – during the Bush administration, but he was he was really elevated as like almost a hero, especially for the Abu Ghraib story, um, which of course was also like most of what he has ever done, um, or virtually all of it, you know, borne out in with additional corroboration almost immediately. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it it wasn't just that all of a sudden in 2013 the establishment became captured because I mean Hirsch had, well, no, had been not. Hirsch. I mean Hirsch started at the New York Times, right? So I mean it's not like he yeah, was always I mean, this like you know, a bomb thrower from these uh, dissident or al alternative publications. It was just that, you know, it kind of differs with the political climate to a large degree. I mean, you think if he had a bombshell report on Trump that he would have had a problem placing it in a mainstream publication? Almost certainly not. Um, but, you know, now we have a Democratic administration. There's all, like, the political dynamics around what it means to be a Russia enabler or, you know, sycophant or, you know, a stooge or whatever, and that, like, you you know, that you're going to be facing those criticisms if you report negatively on the U.S. war effort um, or, you know, supposedly advance a Russian narrative. So I think that that also plays into it um, as well. Uh, just so, you know. on, on him as well, though, that this story basically puts him on the hook for libel across the entire U.S. administration and the individuals that he's named, the Norwegians, okay, and basically every single named party in it. 
Now, he's 85. He's got nothing to lose. Right? Well, and, well, a libel law in the United States, you, it's very hard. I mean, you have to prove that they, like, recklessly, they, they like, lie. They wanted to lie. They knew the truth. Or they just didn't care about the truth at all. So I, I wouldn't put too much into the, the, the libel part. Okay, well, whether enough. or not it meets the legal um, so standard he, of libel in the United States, he's saying that Joe Biden directly gave an order to bomb yeah, I mean, a pipeline. I mean, that like, I mean, that's even just reputationally or forget the libel per se as a legal technicality. That alone is like, you know, explosive enough that if we're to, if we're it to be disproven, let's say, um, you know, Hirsch basically is now in total disrepute and, um, you know, and actually, it would be, it is harmful to Biden's reputation if that is untrue. I mean, he probably wouldn't yeah. sue. But I mean, the alternative uh, but, is maybe he's 85 and maybe his judgment isn't, you know, what it once was is sort of, you know, the other way to look at yeah, it. Yeah, but I mean, first, first of all, people assume that because he's on Substack, he doesn't have an editor. Um, that's not necessarily the case. I mean, I've, <laughs> I don't know about you, Richard, but I've had editorial assistants on Substack. I mean, there are ways to arrange that. Um, so it's not like no, but the, we the, should the just editorial assistant's not going to tell them like whether this is a great source or not, right? I mean, they're going to what do grammar and and so forth, right? No, I'm, well, I'm, I'm saying I'm, I'm saying I, it, I it wouldn't. Hirsch has got more I'll, capability than that. Well, right. I just meant that it wouldn't. It's not necessarily the case that it would be exclusively his judgment that went into this. You think he brings piece. someone uh, along to like like vet the sort? Like you think that that's a. I think he yeah, would have had input from others, yeah. Maybe. I mean, but who knows? Like, who knows what? Like, if his judgment is bad, like, the people he's relying on, he might not rely on the smartest people, too, right? But we, we only need to wait. Like, all of the stuff he's produced, we only need to wait a certain yeah, period of I, time. I, I, think we'll, I think we will get... I mean, I don't think this will remain a secret forever, no matter who did it. I think you're right. Uh, I think but, we will um, find out eventually. Can, can I just run by an idea, right? Sure. The reason, the, the question why, okay, so why would, why would you go to Hirsch? One of the possibilities is that what you might be seeing is the internal chain of command actually realising, holy shit, this is out, getting out of control. This, the scale of what we've done is fucking huge, right? I mean, it is huge because, let's, let's be clear, even though Hirsch says this, he doesn't actually hammer this point as much. He literally wraps this up in a quote. It's an act of war. Well, hang on. It's an act of war against the of, between from the US against Germany with Germany's own tacit agreement to act uh, to attack itself with open collusion from the Norwegians and possibly some other nations at least knowing. Right. So what that is is is, is multiple uh, uh, um, allies attacking their own allied bloc because the gas feed. Is dependent. Other many other nations are dependent on that gas feed. And yeah, what happened to NATO unity? In the rest of the world, right? The, the, any other false flag that's ever initiated a war, including the Bay of Pigs, right, sh just pales into insignificance on this, right? So what I'm wondering is, there could be. You, you know how there's a concept of the chain of command of fire control. So even if the nutbag president issues a command to fire. That's got to get down to the guys with the keys and the button. And in there, there are multiple stages of escape. This could be one of the forms of escape. And somebody's gone, shit, the way we can control, head this off and undermine the US's ability to continue to escalate 
by showing how psychotic and psychosociopathic we have become in order to embroil the West in a shitstorm that, that delegitimizes its ongoing narrative and actions in theatre. That could be one of the reasons why this is coming out. Yeah, and also think about who actually was responsible for organizing the operation, at least according to Hirsch, right? It was this Victoria Newland character who is like um, Zelig. I mean, she's everywhere in Ukraine's sort of policy uh, history with the U.S., uh, it was, um, you know, Jake Sullivan and uh, Blinken. And so, so it didn't originate from the Pentagon. Right? So there could be, and there probably is, because this has been a um, pattern, that there are factions within the Pentagon who actually are uh, resentful and um, antagonistic toward, like, let's say, the State Department, because the State Department tends to have a more hawkish line on this issue, um, in the main than even the Pentagon does. Uh, remember, it was <clears throat> sending the Abrams tanks required overriding the Pentagon, which uh, advised against it. Um, so, you know, if it is a Navy officer or a Navy commander, as uh, Andrew speculated, which seems plausible to me, um, it could also just be that one of these like intra-governmental power sort of dynamic moves where they're asserting where they're trying to like um, push back against what they think is the over uh, sort of domineering influence of non-military or non-Pentagon uh, actors in setting like the uh, setting the policy uh, trajectory here because they think it maybe is uh, you know on a dangerous path. So, I mean, Joe, Joe Biden is senile. The State of the Union speech demonstrates well, that he's lost that. his cognitive ability. No, I mean, I think people overstate that. I think, uh, I mean, cognitive decline is different than senility. So, I mean, clearly he's undergoing cognitive decline just because he's 80 years old. And most people who are 80 years old do that. Um, you know, it's funny. But I don't know. I mean, if he's senile, he, I'm sorry. If someone is senile, they cannot deliver a speech. He can't deliver a speech. He did. I mean, he did deliver it. It wasn't the most brilliant. I mean, and he even had an extemporaneous exchange yeah, with the Republicans sure. booing him and uh, calling him a liar over Social Security and Medicare. So, I mean, you can't do that if you're senile. I don't know why people are so, you know, uh, committed but, to but, calling but, him but, senile I mean, when he's not. Are you comfortable with a person with the capabilities or lack the lacks of capability, whatever they actually are, that he is demonstrating in public just reading off auto cues? You're happy with him. Well, no, I think he has diminished capability. I just think that's different from being senile, which means like you're a vegetable. Okay, I mean, yeah. So, so I'm just, I'm just shocked that he is. I, well, I always believed that he wouldn't make it past the end of this term, and that Kamala Harris would end up being a shut, a shut, a shun in for uh, a shoe in for him, because that was kind of potentially the game plan from the beginning. Um, yeah. I think he's running again. I don't think she's got the. I think if anything, if anything, they're trying to, they're trying to. Uh, Sideline Kamala Harris because she's a liability. Yeah, they know. Well, yeah, she is an equal, large liability now. Yeah. Um, one one of the qu- qu- yeah question I'd ask is um, the problem we've got with this story now is that when you when you look back and you do the back test between what has Russia said and done over what period of time compared to what has the West said and done over the same period of time 
and you end up with a very divergent graph. You basically get consistency. It doesn't matter whether they're true, right? Whether, whether either side is right or wrong in absolute terms or whether they're really true. But what you'll get is gross consistency from Russia and massive inconsistency and provable lies from the West. And this is get that, 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 that is getting worse and worse to the point where the United Nations. Well, I mean, hold on, Gator. <laughs> this up. Hold on, Gator. I mean, is that really fair to say if it just is true that before February 24th, Russian officials from bottom up, you know, or maybe from, you know, Putin on down insisted that no invasion of Ukraine was going to happen and then it happened? It's a pretty big inconsistency. Well, but wait a second. So in, 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 in the entire build-up, they have effectively said... Crimea is, 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 is our strategic interest and it always will be. And there was almost no pushback from the West when that, when that was annexed and taken that actually didn't really get that much um, Western resistance, right? They said, oh, illegal, but they didn't really do anything about it. They well, they did. Really I mean, they, did, they right? did some pretty broad sanctions. I mean, yeah, Russia I mean, actually did have a downturn or it did have a stifled growth um, post-2014 because of the initial sanction uh, package that was placed by you know obama and you know the eu so okay but if but if i think people considered... sort of forget the actually the scope of that i mean it wasn't obviously anything like how that happened in 2022 but it wasn't it was far from nothing but nobody called that an invasion in 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 extreme terms when it technically was right because they they uh, partly because they know that that is an inherent outcome Russia will do this if we if we fuck with the Ukrainian political setup and destabilize their war, their only deep warm water port, then they are going to take that. Right? If if it, otherwise, why would why would Ukraine have not bolstered and? Blocked? Well, I mean, but you got to explain to me how every top Russian official adamantly insisted before February twenty fourth that there would not be an invasion of Ukraine. Okay. And then an invasion so, happens, and then. Somehow that doesn't add up to inconsistency in the Russian narrative? I mean, how is that possible? Because, because if you want to actually force somebody into a bullied negotiation to get them to do what you want without having to invade them, you have to have the demonstrable Okay, but whatever the strategic logic behind them. it, it's still an inconsistency. Well, no, because it's a negotiating tactic, isn't it? Right. Of all, but if you plot this out in a graph, this is one point on a very long-standing graph, right? Because all of the other stuff before and after of effectively everything going back to Berlin and not one other inch and all the rest of it and all the things that we've repeatedly talked about with you and your show, right, they're basically consistent. And in this one thing, if you're going to play a game of forcing somebody to do something that you want, you have to walk quietly and have a big stick. The big stick is surrounding three sides of that nation with an armed force under the guise of a military exercise so you can legitimately position them there in the first place and then giving them about three weeks where they go, you're under pressure now, are you going to fucking fuck off or sign this piece of paper? Like, no, 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 we're, we're, not, we're not going to hurt you, but we do want to talk about this stuff. We're not going to hurt you. And then when the guy doesn't talk about the stuff, you go, you start escalating. That is a standard negotiating tactic in any, anyone's game, right? You don't get nothing. You don't get something if you're showing nothing. It's just poker. Yeah. All right. Well, I don't know. I'm sort of hung up on that inconsistency point. But as always, food for thought. So thanks, Gator. Let's go to uh, armchair. 
Mr. Armstrong. Hey, yeah, how's it going? Not bad. How are you? <laughs> yeah, I'm good, thanks. Um, I guess, like, I'd ask um, regarding the uh, Samar Hirsch uh, thing, like, do you think there will be, uh, you know, follow-up from the mainstream media about about this, or is it possible that this will just get ignored and um, everybody will just move on? Um, uh, yeah, I actually sort of, I don't agree with one thing Gator said earlier, which is that the, you know, the New York Times or the Washington Post would just never report on this as a rule. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think if there were overwhelming proof um, that the U.S. actually was responsible for this bombing, you would see it probably come out in some form in the more mainstream venues eventually. Um, because, you know, it's not as though there haven't been preliminary sort of implications made in certain pieces that have run about at least now that they're sort of trending away from the assumption that Russia could have been culpable. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's very plausible that Hirsch was kind of the canary in the coal mine here and maybe, you know, sort of opened the floodgates to more people talking because now it's been put out there. Um, so uh, I would expect that there are at least some, I mean, people in the New York Times are, I mean, the New York Times in particular, but also the Washington Post, they're, these are like multifarious uh, institutions, right? So there are going to be people who are keenly aware of Hirsch's reporting and are going to be using it as a lead or using, you know, um, using it to pursue different angles on, on this. And uh, I would expect probably some follow-up. It's hard to say for sure, but um, I at least think it's almost certain that this would will have spurred certain uh, reportorial um, tax that uh, might have been in process anyway, but now kind of like have a bit of extra acceleration on them at some of these uh, other outlets. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it feels like, I mean, just from the story itself, um, again, like assuming it's stipulating that it's true, or even like you don't even have to stipulate that. I mean, it implica- it would implicate a large amount of individuals. And I feel like all of these main, like New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, they would have sources they could they could talk to and see if they can corroborate any of this and then uh, put out some reporting and say whether or not they actually did. The other thing is that I wanted to ask or just maybe hear your thoughts on, um, like for me, when I was reading it, I thought I was a little bit confused and this is not, you know, disproving or any kind of evidentiary point, but more of like a, you know, more of like a why would they do it type of point. Like after the pipeline was already canceled, essentially, I wonder why would they go ahead? If I mean, if this was planned, I get it. But still, why would they continue with 
with this plan to make you know make it well i'm i'm curious if uh i'm curious what richard thinks about this but like one one thing i would say that seems to ring true is that you know a, a strategic objective of the u.s has been to kind of sever any remaining ties between germany and russia right i mean that's sort of been a nagging sort of uh element of the coalition, meaning Germany and its sort of historic um, pursuit of something like a detente with Russia or forging of ties as a as an impediment to having a unified front or at least the appearance of a unified front within NATO. Um, hence, <coughs> and hence the lobbying recently for Germany to actually take the lead in sending the tanks to Ukraine and then the U.S. even goes so far, at least Biden even goes so far as overriding the Pentagon in authorizing the provision of these Abrams tanks so that uh, Germany will actually move forward with the Leopard tanks because that's a sort of a threshold crossing move on their part. Uh, and, you know, they're, you know, probably the most, um, seen as the most Russia sympathetic major power within the sort of NATO align, alliance, right? Um, and so, you know, that is partially accomplished, meaning that, that severance of the relationship could be partially accomplished by, you know, physically severing the pipeline. Um, that's one potential, you know, rationale that I can see for why it uh, might have been done. But you know, I don't know, Richard, what do you think? Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I agree with everything you say. I mean, it's almost over determined it's good for more effort here it's good for uh uh it's good for the u.s to um cut russia's ties to uh germany um and it's you know sort of u.s is sort of muscling in and establishing hegemony sort of over uh you know over its uh uh you know vassals but in europe um the uh um, yeah the, the u.s is now the number shot. one i think uh, I have to double check, but the the percentage increase of the gas that Europe takes in, or the you know, energy supply that Europe imports that comes from the U.S. has just gone up exponentially in the past year. So I mean, it's like a hate. It's like a boondoggle for uh, or a bonanza for the U.S. Uh, energy industry. I mean, Exxon had record all time record profits for 2022 for any energy company ever um so i mean not that that's like most the direct sort of conscious motive but these are sort of boom times now for the american industry which is american energy industry which is obviously you know a very uh, politically influential yeah. sector of the shocked if germany also like wasn't happy to like let this happen because like germany i think probably long term wants to get off russian oil and it's going to be you know hard they're going to have you know like People argue like future governments may want to go back on it, right? To burn all bridges, you know, might be, you know, might be something Germany would go along with. It might not be something U.S. you know did in defiance of Germany because it doesn't doesn't seem like they're going to be, a, you know, it doesn't seem like they're excited about staying on staying connected to Russia for a long term. Yep. All right. Um, thanks, Armchair. Uh, let's go back to uh, Andrew. 
I just had one more question and then a quick good news uh, about. Let's have the good news first. Well, okay. yeah, I, I don't know. know. I didn't know we brought it. They, callers brought news to us, but okay, yeah. Well, he comes bearing good. It's important news. It's actually probably more important than anything you talked about. I've been unbanned from Twitter. Oh, oh, well, God. huzzah! Yeah, you want to do a little so. musical celebration? <laughs> um, how well, did it? Uh, how did it happen? Well, I was going to give a tip because four times I did it twice under Elon and nothing worked. And then the fifth time, what I did was I insisted to them that I was a real person and that I would offer to verify my identification. And I just clearly laid out again why I didn't break the rules. And this time, uh, and I got that tip from someone else that was repeatedly appealing, never worked. And then the first time they offered to verify the identity, it they just were unsuspended after months and years yeah, of they asking. want your they want your eight bucks but you know the thing is i didn't verify i didn't give them my id i just offered so yeah. i think part of it's just random luck but part of it is they're trying to get rid of bots well i had a i had a good thing happen on twitter in that i got i rallied enough um critics of one of those stupid community notes that they plaster on to tweet now which are so <laughs> annoying uh, i rallied enough people uh, pointing out that, or I pointed out that they they literally put on a false factual assertion in that community note, which is really just a pretext for smuggling in like basically political narratives and political objections, and it's like phony impartiality, like that. They make it out to be this benign little community intervention just to be helpful and to provide additional quote context, but. Every time it's happened to me, like the context is actually wrong, and uh, or at least you know, the it's factual speech. clarifications that they add are wrong, and also it's all it's it's censorship. I mean, it's not censorship in the sense that it prevents me from speaking, right? But it's a manipulation of my speech um, by kind of like defacing it with these extraneous and often incorrect claims that I can't control that now sort of are appended to my speech without me being able to appeal it or do anything about it. So anyway, it's stupid. But for the first time, I actually got the community note removed because I think wow. they, couldn't, they, couldn't, uh, they couldn't deny that I had pointed out that there was a factual error in it. The so. community was overpowered? I yeah, I, 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 beat, I defeated the community. <laughs> nice. Great job. Uh, yeah, it's different than – that's, by the way, you're right. It's forced speech is what it is. And it's censorship through forced speech, but people don't understand. It's like compelled speech. They're not familiar with that concept as much. But that's basically yeah, it is. It's um, yeah, compelled speech. Well, I don't know if compelled speech is quite the right, uh, quite what it is, because they're not compelling me to speak anything. But it's something along those lines. If you spoke in public and then your words magically were followed by a recording of some spooks opinions on what you were saying every time you spoke vocally in public, I feel like you'd feel Yeah, like I actually had a community to... note where one of the sources that they linked to for quote context was whitehouse.gov. And it's just there like really so the white the White House, I mean it was it was some background briefing that the Pentagon did at the White House. And like really the the Amplification that's so missing in American life is the Pentagon background briefings that go directly to the media, then they pump out in Reuters and AP and everything. That's what needs to be added to my tweet for your stupid little community note. 
Context? Yeah. Wow. Okay. These are Great all, feature. It's very different than when I was banned like a year ago because there's uh, not only that, there's all these new additions. I tried to like and retweet something from Scott Ritter and was warned by Twitter that basically look into this more. Do you really want to like this? We're trying to keep Twitter a reliable place for good information was essentially the well, the warning. So you get I do actually now. think you should look into Scott Ritter more because I'm increasingly yeah. doubtful. Did you see the, well, the credibility? With the, uh, the yeah. I mean, I don't even think that the controversy ought to have be around his, you know, whatever happened with his conviction there for, uh, you know, some kind of online interaction that he had with a supposedly underage person, although I think it was a police officer pretending to be an underage person, so he didn't That's actually interact with yep. an underage person. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, the guy, I mean, he said outright a few days ago that he's not anti-war and he's an avowed partisan of the Russian war effort. Um, and so they invited him to an anti-war rally to speak and to be like one of the publicists of the rally. Um, and he's just explicitly not anti-war. He's just not yeah. <laughs> in favor of the Ukraine side. He's in favor of the other side. So I, mean, I, don't, I don't know how that squares with speaking at an anti-war rally. But then again, maybe I'm simple-minded. Well, I think the only way that the war ends is uh, Russia winning at this point. So in a way... Uh, just ending support for Ukraine is essentially supporting Russia, because that is the lifeline. I, you know, I don't really have. Well, I don't know, but pro-Ukraine people will make the same argument. They'll say, "Look, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm anti-war. That's why I want to send tanks, because the only way yeah. to end the war is to defeat Russia." Okay, well, the, the tanks are not like anti-war vehicles; they're war facilitation devices. So, right. I mean, you could. Make that argument, but it's not an anti-war argument. It's a pro-war argument. It's for, well, you're for, you're for the war. He himself says he's not anti-war, so that pretty much seals the deal on that, right. as far as I'm concerned. So why, so why would he be selected to be one of the featured speakers at an anti-war well, rally? I think that the idea was that he's... Because it's not an anti-war rally. He, it's not an anti-war rally. It's kind of an anti-U.S. intervention rally, and it doesn't really matter if... Well, I mean, they say it, they... they, they they port they explicitly the advertise it as an anti-war rally. Yeah, of course they do, but that's <laughs> which is not. You know, that you should probably have people that don't say they're not anti-war coming to speak at an anti-war rally. That's just bad organization, I think. At the end of the day, uh, if you have people that you really want to be on message, you have to have people that are going to agree to do that. And they also have and Tara Reid as one of their big speakers, who is like the most preposterous scam artist I've ever seen in American life. And also, also, by right. the way, is, it happens to be a partisan of the Russian war effort as well. I mean, that's the just humiliating. Do, yeah. anything, anything that would elevate her as a featured sort of representative is just like self-discrediting. I'm sorry. The it's People's Party is also not... The uh, you could go through the list of every single person at this rally. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Well, Tulsi Gabbard's there as well. Tulsi Gabbard will be speaking. Yeah, and I mean, she's okay. she's anti-war. Is she anti-war? Of course not. Well, I mean, she. Um, I mean, she. I think would have an anti, like an actual anti-war position vis-a-vis -vis this particular war. Sure, maybe you could say in this war, but you could definitely. Well, it's about this war. A, sure. Okay. Yeah. There's definitely 
I think it should have been called a U.S. anti-intervention rally or something along that, but it doesn't really. I mean, Ron Paul's apparently speaking too, and he voted for the invasion of Afghanistan. So if you go by that criteria, right. then he's just not anti-war either, which I think is a bit silly. I mean, if you, yeah. I think he would, if you, it's fine to limit it to this particular war, but in the case of this particular war, they have a bunch of featured speakers who are not anti-war. They're pro-war. They're just pro-Russia military. They have Russian a member. Military would, triumph. Yeah, I mean, Jackson Hinkle is... You know, yeah, I mean, that's another example. Like, and I mean, that guy's... I don't even know what his deal is, but also not anti-war. <laughs> he tells us that Russia will not, would not allow satanic rituals on its television, so therefore, yeah, uh, it needs to win the war. Yeah, it's it's uh, they have a weak personality. Yeah, well, anyway, I agree with you on this stuff generally. I'm just happy that there's some kind of, I mean, there are. Well, why should you be happy about it? I mean, if you actually let's say you do favor an anti-war position, right, and you want that to be more Mm -hmm. mainstream and you want it to gain political traction, why would you be in favor of an event that? Discredits the that <laughs> yeah, it's cause. Not a, it's not good because you should be against it. <laughs> well, I want something. I mean, like Tara this, Reed. I mean, you got to be freaking tell kidding me. About, me. I mean, that is Tara just Reed. humiliating. I don't know much of what is Tara Reed? Oh, I don't even want to get into it. It's so, it's so aggravating. The reason I want it is because there's nothing else in the country, and I don't want this iteration of it. I want something better than it. But just because this is not perfect and probably infiltrated by people and there's a clear effort to tear it down by a lot of I'm not saying that's what you're doing. I'm just saying this is the only thing in the entire country going on that's an anti-intervention movement at all. And I would like – and the interesting thing to me is that there are people like uh, Max Blumenthal that are going to be there as well as people like Scott Horton that are going to be there. And no, I mean I get, I get that. I, I'm not, I'm not casting aspersion obviously on everyone who's participating. I, I get that. But um, there's, a, yeah. there's a spirit here of left-right unity that's against anti-war. Uh, you can say the whole thing is an anti-war. It's an anti-U.S. intervention uh, movement is really what it should be at its core because that's what they're advocating for. And I'm sorry, and they're having a guy who's the co- they know the convo couch, whatever the hell that is, yeah. with that girl Fiorella, and then the partner, right. whatever his name is, Craig. I mean, the girl Fiorella, she actually is working for the Russian state propaganda apparatus. I'm sorry, just factually true. That's what she's doing. She joined it in May of last year when the war yeah. was already underway for several months in so, order to support the russian war effort and like she actually not just as a matter of like accusing someone of this to discredit them speciously which is usually how this goes but she literally is you know pro-putin in the sense that she makes it her mission to praise putin as a wonderful leader she works for the russian state and she supports the russian war effort in names and the guy who is her partner and has the same views, he's speaking at the rally. So, I mean, <laughs> I, I don't think that's great for the, quote, anti-war no, cause because I, it, it, it legitimizes the criticism that there actually are pro-Russian people participating in yeah. the rally. It's not, that's not just a tendentious accusation Shit. like it okay. typically is. It's actually true. Of course, but the idea is going forward that we have to have these kinds of challenges where you say we want to invite a broad audience, but how do we gatekeep in an effective way and that's that's there's so few people doing it and the people that want a more pure crowd it who else is organizing this it's the libertarian party national uh chair and the people's party so that's who you can blame for the bad organization 
and the bad choice of uh, people. But this is going to be an effort. That All right. Well, I blame them. A, <laughs> I hear I blame them. Oh, good. I agree. I agree. <laughs> they should be blamed. I'm not defending them. I just want you to understand that I think that this is the kind of thing that should happen, but that there's always going to be challenges that this wasn't handled right. And this is one of the main challenges. How do you how do you get a broad coalition without you, you basically have to gatekeep bad faith actors out and keep, keep but you're pull, pulling. I mean, gatekeeping is the wrong way of putting it because that almost seems like well, it almost it makes it seem right. like this sort of, you know, um, overbearing sort of micromanagement. Well, what do you um, call where I mean, <laughs> I think if you're going to have an anti-war rally and you're going to advertise it as an anti-war rally, probably one of the key criteria for who you want to elevate as the face of the rally should be that they're anti-war rather than pro-war. And they couldn't even yes. get that right. No. I, again, I'm not defending that. I'm just saying that, for example, should anyone that's pro-Russian generally and not be allowed, like if you have a pro-Russian position, should that stop, uh, should they not be invited to an anti If you're pro, if you're a pro the Russian war effort in that you want, you support the Russian war effort and want Russia to achieve its war aims, then yeah, that's, that ought to be disqualifying for an anti-war rally. I mean, if you want to hold a pro-Russia rally, then hold a pro-Russia rally. But if you want to call it an anti-war rally, then what if it's anti You're having people who directly contravene the right. core impetus for the rally. We're talking past each other here because I'm not talking about an anti-war rally in this hypothetical. I'm talking about an anti-U.S. intervention. If you're looking to get as broad of a coalition as you can possible for a U anti-U.S. intervention, because that's what we control here, proud, then are you going to allow pro-war people in? And that's probably, you'd say no, I guess, because that's, it, it, uh, I don't know. It's, it's a different question to me than anti-war, because it, I agree with you. It is, that is a contradiction. But if you're saying anti-U.S. intervention, because there's so few people calling for anti-U.S. intervention, how do you gatekeep that? And are we going to keep people like that out? And I guess that's a question that's not been handled. Well, I mean, I wouldn't organize one of these rallies because they're probably inevitably going to become a shit show. So, yeah. <laughs> That's a fair point. But can I just ask, I didn't even mean to get into any of this. My question was just about Russiagate and how that hasn't been acknowledged by the media. And do you think that this story with the pipeline will ever be acknowledged? And that was kind of a question you were asked previously. And you both said you thought the story would come out in time. But will it come out in this way that the truth of Russiagate has come out, where you've seen the stuff with Matt Taibbi and Hamilton 68 and the Twitter files and the Columbia Journalism Review. And it seems like none of this has happened to the... The mainstream media just ignores it all, it seems like. So if this and this has to yeah. do directly with Russia, so I feel like it could be contaminated with that taint and we may never find out. I don't know. You know I just think Russia Gate is a whole different sort of animal than this. I mean Russia Gate is okay. like a sprawling sort of multi layered, multi dimensional sort of narrative arc, right? That has like almost infinite elements to it. Whereas here we're talking about a specific U.S. military operation that was ordered to be carried out in secret and blew up a pipeline, right? So it's, it's more tangible. Um, so I think the tangibility of it uh, kind of bolsters the idea that there will be some sort of acknowledgement. I mean, because, like, presumably the rest of the media is interested in what actually happened with that pipeline, right? It's like a live story. Um, they have occasional updates on it. 
in increments in the mainstream venues. Um, so unless they just plan to ignore it for the rest of time, which seems not particularly plausible, um, I do think that eventually, you know, there, you'll, you'll, you probably will see some sort of narrative breakthrough, assuming that the, her story is accurate, which I have no reason to doubt. Right. But, so, like, you know, it, if that is the case, that it's true, then um, it would also almost certainly have to be the case that it will penetrate wider sort of consciousness at some point. Remember, it's only, it's only been a day since the, her sure, story sure. came out. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks for your time. All right, thanks, Andrew. Hey, Alex. Can you hear me? Alex, you Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, good. Since I'm new to this. Yeah, just on the her story, uh, I have to say, I'm pr- I probably disagree with you and most of your viewers that I'm pretty skeptical of the story since I wish he, he had based this kind of story on more than one source. And yet, I feel like it's too detailed for it to be total bullshit. I mean, he even specifically talks about how the, the bombing happened. You know, right down to like a Norwegian plane dropping a sonar buoy to ignite the charges, which is, I think, it's a pretty specific a- accusation. And well, I think the Norway aspect of it's pretty interesting since I feel like there are Norwegian reporters who can, you know, who have contacts with the Norwegian government who can find out the veracity of it. Since so I mean, according to the story, I mean, they actually came up with the idea of attacking the pipeline near whatever Danish island that was. So I feel like that could be a that's there, there's at least something there for follow up, even if. Even if you're skeptical of the story, I want to know what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, I understand why people are hung up on the one source thing. Uh, and I'm not saying you're hung up. I'm not trying to, you know, be pejorative with that, uh, or why, you know, why they're emphasizing that part of it. But I mean, let's just say hypothetically, right? Biden is a source on something that he he authorized. I'm not saying that's the case here, but just in a hypothetical. A report comes out in some media outlet that only has one source. The source is Biden. That's not disclosed in the article, right? But it is Biden, and it gives like comprehensive detail uh, of the operation. Now, people could raise the same point about that article, right? They're, they could say, I mean, this is just one source. This doesn't make any sense. But you know, it depends on the source, right? I mean, if it, let's say the source in theory is for this Hirsch article is, you know, the chief of the special operations for the Naval Command, right, who oversaw the organization of the operation and knew the ins and outs with precise detail of um, how it was how it was uh, executed and ordered and knew the chronology of it and so forth. Um, I don't know. I think that would suffice as a source, right? So, uh, you know, whereas you could have four sources on something, and you see this trick often in the media, you could have four sources on, on something who are just like, you know, speculating or just giving hunches or kind of giving sort of skewed information almost purposefully to seed something into a news article. Um, and the fact that there are four of them maybe seems good on paper, right? And the New York Times did this over the course of Russiagate all the time. One of the examples was actually mentioned in that Columbia Journalism Review essay where they had this thing about Russian contacts had this uh, extensive relationship with the Trump campaign, right? And they were, you know, multiple sources who supposedly corroborated this, and the story was just junk. Um, But, you know, the fact that there were four of them is often like just the journalists, like, trying to cover their bases, 
and like give an impression that it has a solid backing that it doesn't really have. So the number of sources um, isn't necessarily sort of dispositive as to how reliable the source is because you could have a story that has one source that's reliable and a story that has four sources that's unreliable. And you wouldn't necessarily know unless you know the source, right? So I guess yeah. that's what, what I guess that's the way I would put it in terms of maybe cautioning not to put all your eggs in that one basket. Let's see. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. I, I think there's also there's all I've also seen a theory out there that Ukraine actually did it since they have nothing to lose at this point since they're in a war supposedly for their existence. But I don't know if they have the technological capacity to do it. But I mean, you look at how they attacked the Crimean Bridge, which they did it basically with a sort of a crude truck bomb. Right. That's pretty, that, That's one theory I saw out there. But yeah, or you know, and they've done some pretty brazen operations. Even other than that, like you know the Dugan attempted assassination, the um, drone strikes three hundred miles into Russian territory on the um, naval installation, or sorry, the. Um, Air, Air Force installation that houses the part of the Russian nuclear uh, fleet. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily think it's just worth assuming that they don't have the technical ability, especially, I mean, we don't know the full details of the technical arrangement that they have with the United States in terms of like what's shared back and forth, especially with their special operations. And, you know, remember uh, a couple months ago, The Intercept reported that um, Biden had signed a um, – Biden had done this basically secret order for covert – authorizing covert operations within Ukraine for, you know, allowing boots on the ground legally in Ukraine and that the um, breadth of that deployment is actually much more expansive than had been thought. So um, if Ukraine did it, you would have to expect or you would probably have the sort of operating – Assumption that it was in some sense in conjunction with the U.S., uh, but who's to say? So, like, I mean, if you're going to accuse Ukraine of doing it, it's almost like a de facto accusation that the, the U.S. did it, right? Because how could Ukraine do it, given on their own, autonomously, given that their whole like, kind of existence as a state is contingent on the U.S. at this point? Yeah, yeah, that's true with Ukraine. I think that's true with any whatever Western state might have been behind it, if not the U.S. I mean, they probably approached the U.S. first and asked yeah, for Poland or permission something. or some sort of. Yeah, yeah. It's so even if the her story isn't true, I'm, I mean, I the most I mean the most likely suspects probably some sort of Western entity, definitely. Yeah, yeah, I agree. <laughs> I mean, I know no maybe you don't agree with this surmise that I've made, but I'm just going to kind of assume I'm going to move forward. And in moving forward, I'm just going to work from the assumption that the story is true until there is some evidence that shows that that's not a fair assumption to make because of the, you know, sort of assessment that I have of Hirsch's credibility and, you know, of the, you know, meticulous detail that he gives and how just bewildering and totally beyond out of character it would be if there was just some outright straight up fabrication that he just somehow published under his uh, byline for the first time in, you know, 50 years. So, yeah, yeah, he's got it. Yeah. I respect his track record and what he's done over the years. Definitely. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Alex. All right. Uh, Phil, how's it going? 
Looks like uh, Richard dropped out. No, I'm here. He, uh, he, usually, he usually makes it about an hour and a half, and then he just can't handle anymore. <laughs> uh, how you doing, guys? Uh, I just want to react to that story. I mean, uh, we're talking about Hirsch. And, uh, it, again, I'm going to come back to my theme. I mean, it tells you something about uh, uh, what's happened to us that we're literally arguing about the minutiae, you know, whether he was accurate on one thing or another. I I say, forget all that. I mean, common sense would tell you there are two groups that could have blown this thing up. It was the West or it was Russia. (laughs) And I find you've got to be a pretty simple minded person to think that there's some advantage to Russia by blowing up this pipeline. It makes no sense. So it's, to me, it's as simple as that. Uh, the fact that no media have really done a deep dive is is astonishing. It tells you where everybody's at on this war. I mean, they come up with I mean, it's just it's crazily implausible, <laughs> and yet it, it's kind of left hanging there, uh, you know, as the only other answer uh, to, to what happened there. So. Uh, it's kind of interesting. I, I, I suppose uh, more people will dive in now but, uh, uh, and will be called uh, conspiracy theorists or something like that. Yeah, you know, the thing is, uh, Phil, even if the explanation seems like it's obvious based on common sense, that doesn't <laughs> preclude the necessity of having actual proof or having yeah, some but, sort but, but of I, empirical you, absolutely. Uh, com- of course empirical validation of what you think the commonsensical explanation is. Because sometimes actors, whether on the world stage or wherever else, do stuff that's, that defies common sense, right? So, no, I mean, uh, yeah, it, it doesn't seem commonsensical for Russia to do it, but I'm not going to sit here and say that there's 0% chance that Russia could have done it, because I don't know. I mean, some... Sometimes states do crazy stuff or like factions within states have rivalries and, you know, are have grudges or whatever and act out or, you know, do something kind of brash or even accidentally. So common sense is a intuition or a hunch that can be borne out or not by the facts. But I, I'm still sort of insistent on needing the facts before I say anything with total certainty. Well, the facts are Germany says they know who did it. That's a fact. Do they say that? Anybody? Yeah. Where was that? (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, there was a couple of notifications on that. I I mean, I've seen that several times in mainstream press. Germany says they know who did it. Yes, I think they were uh, a German. The German uh, adjutant, you know, I I don't know what the hell his title was and everything, but it was a significant player in in the German military. Was the last one I saw. But I'd seen reports of that before. Uh, Spiegel was reporting that. I, I think there were a number of, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, that suggested it or made that clear. I mean, you know, again, it's just when you get to this level of kind of implausibility, it just it's not a man, even a matter of common sense. It's just like, seriously, I mean, we're that gaslit I mean, <laughs> that we think. They would do that. I mean, it just makes absolutely no sense. Okay, but how, how about this, Phil? Okay, so does it seem commonsensical to you for, let's say, the UK 
to participate in this Russian sanctions regime. You know, it's funny. I was in the UK last um, uh, March and April, right? Um, yeah. And I was in London. And uh-huh. I was in a cab, and there was a sign on – there was a notice in the back of the cab saying um, they can't accept Russian-connected bank cards anymore. I mean the, the cab can't accept that it's fair. Right. So all of a sudden, one day in London, they shut off the ability of anybody with a credit card or a debit card that's connected to a Russian bank to pay for a cab ride. Um, now, does it seem commonsensical to you that the UK would impose sanctions that caused or at least were significantly contributed to it going into a recession, which it is in, in now, and all the political, uh, economic uh, uh, sort of ramifications that that has? Meanwhile, Russia actually is experiencing growth in its economy despite right. being the most sanctioned country in right. human history. Does that sound right. like common sense to you? It doesn't really no, sound like it, common it sense to like, me, but they did it, right? Like, so, you know, a lot of the like, stuff sort of defies what we think to be kind of common sense in the moment. Well, no, it's actually very consistent with what happens when you construct narratives and then begin to operate as though the narrative was reality. And that's what happened here. Uh, it's very simple. I mean, they looked at the at Russia, they measured it on a scale, and it's got the you know you remember the old tagline used to be uh, it's like uh, Venezuela with nukes. That was the rap on Russia. You know, they were some backwater. Yeah, it's a it's a no, it's no. a gas station masquerading as a country. Right. That's what McCain right. would say. Okay, well, you know, if you've got food and fuel, okay, you're king. People will buy it. Unless you're, unless it's stolen from you, a la Syria, you know, it's just that simple. It's a commodity-based economy. Now, I think people should have known that, and they should have known with the Iran experience that sanctions have limited, uh, uh, you know, capacity. They don't work, generally speaking, and they begin to do damage of the kind you're describing, which is why they, you know, they keep coming back to these different uh, exceptions here or there. But the idea that India, Africa, uh, Southeast Asia, they're not going to use fuel from Russia (laughs) to accommodate the U.S., I think that just long term is a mistake. You know, it would work for days. So I think that's what it is. I don't think it's a lack of common sense. I think it's just a strategic uh, analytical failure. They misread the capacity uh, of the Russians to last over time. No, I think that's right. I, I was just trying to make a broader point in that sometimes irrational decision-making prevails such that we can't just go based sure. on what our intuition is in terms of a commonsensical explanation for something being sure. But no, you, you, being right. in all circumstances the actual true factual explanation of something. Sometimes you get just anti-commonsensical divergences from what that expectation is. Sure, sure. And, and that's case, probably not probably not the best word. I'll change it next time. <laughs> uh, but uh, I mean, you said the difference in their economy. And then someone mentioned Crimea, and I think they learned the Russians learned that lesson. Uh, you know, around 2013, 2014, whenever they went into Crimea, 
got sanctioned heavily and it did bite. You, you were right on that. That, that, that hit them hard and they learned a big lesson from that. Right now, I don't know how many countries in Europe are sitting on a cash surplus, but Russia is. <laughs> That's weird, right? You know, uh, uh, so, you know, I, I just don't think, uh, I think they learned their lesson. They, they did a number of banking things. Yeah, I mean, I started think moving that's a good, money around. Yeah, that's a good point, uh, Phil. And I think I see that error made a lot right. by people of different, coming at the issue from different angles. Like, there are people who will say that, oh, the U.S. did nothing in 2014. Well, they did. And basically it appeased Russia and emboldened them to move forward with increasingly aggressive behavior leading up to the invasion because the U.S. showed that it wasn't willing to do what it took to actually um, deter Russia with sufficient, you know, vigor. Um, but, you know, all the same. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that's what people will say if they're trying to argue for even more intense escalation than this war right now because they're saying we learned our lesson with appeasement in 2014. Where, where you could just as easily make the argument that that, that contributed, I mean, mean, the application of those sanctions in 2014 just kind of intensified the conflict between the U.S., you know, the, quote, West and Russia and, um, you know, uh, deteriorated relations and, and so forth and kind of was a proximate cause of the invasion. So but I, think, but I think the misconception should be corrected either way. Which yeah. is that the U.S. the U.S. did not just do nothing in 2014. It actually did a fairly robust precursor sanctions regime um, that had a fairly significant impact. At least if you look at the economic data post 2014. Yes. Yeah. Uh, let me just a, a couple of quick ones that uh, I thought were interesting when you were talking about the, uh, where the leak come from. Is I would suspect. It's a military civilian split. I, I think it comes from our military, but at a higher level than the guys that were laying the mines. I, I think it's because the military at this point, regardless of what the general propaganda is, uh, recognizes that uh, Ukraine is going to lose <laughs> and they're going to lose badly. And uh, that puts us all, uh, the U.S. and, uh, and Europe in a, a very awkward position uh, because of how do you manage, uh, how do you manage that? So I think there, I think there is a beginning search for a way out. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think the military is, generally speaking, less hawkish than the civilian, Yes. Uh, you know, faction within the, you know, the governmental kind of decision-making apparatus on this. So, I mean, I'm not saying that this was the source, right? But, you know, right, let's right. say Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he would have presumably have to be briefed on this or he was involved in it, right? And, right. you know, he's pushed back against some things, like he didn't want the uh, Abrams tanks. He gave, like, I think it was, this was overinterpreted, but he did, like, gesture at this idea that maybe over the winter Ukraine and Russia should negotiate for a ceasefire. Um, he actually didn't ever advocate for that in the kind of fulsome way that it was portrayed when he made the comments in November, but he's gone sort of further than, you know, like a, some of the State Department characters have gone in, in that regard. So if he thinks that, you know, the civilians are kind of drunk on their own Kool-Aid on this and the need, there needs to be some sort of like assertion of, you know, the Pentagon's uh, primacy or 
uh, you know, the judgment of the Pentagon needs to be taken more into consideration for these decisions. I don't know. That's a, that's not implausible. I, I mean, I doubt it would have been Milley himself, I, I but like, you know, somebody with a high, I mean, I, I agree with you that it, the more that I think about it, the more likely it seems that it would have been, you know, I'm thinking of like, you know, whoever, you know, like a senior official or something in the, um, you know, like special operations unit of the Navy command that maybe, you know, would have had uh, jurisdiction over that uh, diving uh, facility where they trained for, for this. Well, look, you, you, you know, uh, and they basically acknowledged it with that uh, story on the targeting and things like that. I mean, we know that the U, if anybody knows what's going on in Ukraine, it's the U.S., we have the technological capacity through satellites and uh, and the AWACS systems and so on and so forth, to, you know, to have a very good look at the ground. Okay, so you know when the Ukrainians are saying, "Oh, we're winning this and we're going to do this," I mean, they, I mean, the, the Americans know. You just really had those stories uh, that came out. Uh, I, I, I think it, I think it was an American military guy that talked about the casualties, which are extraordinary. And certainly not being promoted in the press. You know, they're saying they're heavy uh, and everything, but uh, you know, they're looking at ten to one uh, Russians. Uh, well, the American Ukrainian press Russians. always you know, gives their estimates of Russian casualties, and then they yes. always say that they don't have insight onto Ukrainian casualties, which is, you know, okay. Very weird. Yeah. Listen, I, I, I was your. I wanted to. I wanted to mention one thing on the uh, anti-war, anti-war things. Uh, let me just say that there would have been no anti-war rallies in the 1960s if you didn't have pro-NLF <laughs> factions. Yeah, that's all the way from the from the Communist Party to the mobilization <laughs> across the board. <laughs> it was that because primarily yeah, that's fair. the leftists, the, the leftists had that uh, position for the longest time that the U.S. is the aggressor in uh, in, in Europe, and uh, you know, so we would, you know, it's kind of. They were going to sympathize with uh, uh, Russia at this point, you know. Uh, anyway, well, I'll, I'll let you go. Thank you for the uh, all right, indulgence. Thanks. Yep. <laughs> all right, thanks. Bye. Uh, John. Hey, how are you? John from New Jersey, if I'm not mistaken. Really? Yep. Okay, so the first thing I want to say is, is that I don't believe for one second that it was I, – I believe the article is true. You know, just giving my best guess. And I also believe that everything about it leads me to believe that there are multiple sources. So, like, when I read it, like, before, like, listening to, like, this um, uh, this going on tonight, like, the first thing I thought to myself was, wow, like, it, this entire article is peppered with specifics that could never have been known by just one person, but also done so in a way that, like, the Biden administration would know that whoever was reporting it was true, meaning that like like the, the list of stuff that they like specifically said that could be refuted is crazy. Like so, they for instance they told what plane the exact plane was used to detonate it. They told about what the, where the divers were practicing and when they were doing it. When there's like lo like they log that stuff. You know what I mean? It's not like you just go into a base and use a deep sea diving facility. Like they, they pinned them on that. They talked about how uh, Nor uh, Norway reached out to multiple other countries to get like clearance for it. 
and there was never anybody from these other countries saying that that didn't happen. They named the specific boat used by the divers and the specific depth. They spoke about the legal requirements and how it dictated the specific staffing decisions. They said that, quote unquote, that both a member of the State Department and the CIA said it was stupid. They tell that what um, the Navy suggested specifically before they came up with their final plan and what the Air Force suggested specifically. And they also told what building all these meetings happened in that started and what room it happened in and that there are boys and girls in that room, like not just like men. Like, and to me, what it looks like, what I would think if I was really, if I was a journalist trying to protect my sources, because this is like super top secret stuff. And you had, let's just say, one from Norway and let's say two or three in the military or the State Department or some sort of like, you know, three letter agency type thing, that what you would do is you would have, say, and, and the other thing is Seymour always says the source. That's not to say that there isn't, that, that, that he's talking about the same source every single time and even in when he was like followed up with it he said um quote unquote i can't name people why wouldn't he just say i can't name the person you know what i mean like so what's to say that every time when he said the source it was a different source and that they couldn't he did it in such a way so that they could they knew that what he was saying was correct but they could never pinpoint the one person because it was actually multiple people because quite frankly there's nobody that would have had knowledge about all those things but yet they were specifically designed in such a way where it's very easily refutable if it didn't occur in the way he specifically says, you know? So like, I don't believe that it was one source. I believe that there were multiple ones. I believe that there, he's playing a game to save, like to save the sources, like uh, identity and keep that secret. And that these people are probably, you know, they like, why would, you know, it, it, I remember when, you know, how much, like, Michael, that you flipped out about uh, what happened with uh, Trump with Soleimani, right? And it was a big deal, like, but the difference was, was that Trump immediately took credit for it, and that there was a, there was a legal debate. Some people said uh, it wasn't legal, some people said it was, and it came down to nuance, whether... And and Congress actually um, took, I forget what precisely came of it but there was some activity with the war powers revolution and so forth right and, and here and they, here they brazenly orchestrated it to bypass congress entirely right like but but you know so basically give the executive a lot of power and the the iranians were targeting our embassy we saw soleimani we had a kind of legal situation we could deal with and they killed him and we took credit that's one thing. Well, it's, I mean, the legal the legal the, justification that the Trump administration cited was absolutely ridiculous. They cited the 2002 authorization, authorization for use of force in Iraq. So like the Iraq invasion resolution, that's what they cited. But, but, say, but, but, but you know something? That's, that's like orders of magnitude more credible than anything anybody could possibly say about if the U.S. actually did this. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's probably true. Yeah, I mean, like, and it, it, it's that shit crazy. We, to, I mean, there's multiple countries involved in the ownership. Like, we did it to Germany. It's freaking heating and stuff like that going into a, a winter. Like, there's multiple countries that are our allies. Even, with, so- even if you look at the NATO treaties, so like the North Atlantic Treaty, so the, gover- so the governing principles of NATO, if one country takes military action against another country within NATO, so like if one member state enters into hostilities with another, another member state, they're put into abeyance, meaning they're like suspended from the alliance. 
Yeah, which would mean the United States would be suspended from the alliance if it attacked German infrastructure. And, and as would other countries. And here's the other thing. You know, remember when they wanted to do all of the um, the investigation, they wouldn't allow, like, Germany to be involved in it. And then, like, uh, so each country kind of came up with their own investigation. And not one of these countries, not one of them, are refuting one of the direct quotes. Not one. You know, like, you could easily, if you were just bullshitting, the country come out like, oh, it's, it's bullshit. That plane wasn't even in the air. Or, you know, something, we, we, we didn't have anybody in the area of this. Or Norway never called us about that. Or that building wasn't even in use that day. And it wasn't that one specific office. Or there was, like, there was a gazillion things where they, where he strategically puts out specifics that, if he's wrong, could easily be refuted. But nobody's refuting yeah, like it, it just to me, and then he he has uh, like you were saying um, at the beginning, you know, like there are a few people that you can actually like you don't put your trust in anyone, but I mean this isn't like um, it's the, the National Enquirer, you know what I mean? Like it's like if this came out by Seymour Hirsch, by Glenn Greenwald, like there are uh, there Aaron Monte, like there are a few people that like you can you suspect are on the level enough to not just pull an outright. Fabricate like this would be wildly off, uh, like beyond anything. If Hirsch fabric, if Hirsch is like eighty at eighty five, is senile, then that's the only explanation I can see for it actually being some sort of fabrication or whatever. I, I don't think he's senile. He was the guy, he was just on a book tour. He just published a memoir a couple years ago. Where he's, you know, on doing the interview rounds seemed perfectly lucid obviously you know a little bit slower if, if you're 81 years old or whatever but um uh, the, the, but it, you got to think that he's not going to squander his entire life's work and like sully his reputation that dramatically i mean oh, it doesn't and, and it's, it's absurd and completely off his personality and off every single thing he's ever come to represent and like I mean, it was well written. Like, this isn't like some hodgepodge bullshit by like you know, you know, a college blogger. Like, it was very, very specific in how it was done. And I mean, I and I just don't believe there's one person that he could have been talking to. They, they, you, they, it had to have been somebody from Norway with like a couple of like Washington well, people. And even well, I like, think you made a good point about that because just because there's one quoted source doesn't mean that only one source was consulted. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think it's. I think you're right. That's actually a good way of putting it. It's sort of a misnomer. Yeah. To and say that there was only that. one source just because one source is only quoted. Right. Like or there's something called that. getting information on background, where okay. one of the stipulations is when you're talking to the source that you can't quote them, or you can't reference having talked to them. Right. But there's still a source. But if he quotes somebody, he's like the source. He he's not saying. It. Who's saying that it's the same source? He could, like, if you're my source and Glenn Greenwald's my source, and I just call you the source, both of you, I'm not lying. Uh, you're both the source, you know, but it's uh, hiding identities because, again, like, he, he was telling specific rooms and specific buildings that aren't just utilized for that purpose. Like, there was so much. Like, if, like when I reread it, like, the second time, like, as I was listening to this tonight, I was just shocked by how many specific things that could be called out, like, it's just not – it would just be highly unlikely. Now, could there be what, – what the reason that America did this and, you know, what you were saying with how these countries seem to be acting in ways that are just not rational and in any and, – and 
I mean, this is doing something like this is just, I don't know. It's like, it's really kind of like beyond anything. Like, I mean, this is, we were doing this to allies of us, you know, and, and this is not, we're not doing to Russia, even though, you know, I'm not necessarily saying that I'm anti-Russia or we're not doing this China. I'm not saying I'm anti-China, but at least that's kind of in the general mindset of things. We're supposed to be allies with like Germany, you know, like we're supposed to be on the same page. We're not supposed to send their people into a, a, a catastrophic winter, what they thought with like, you know, and wreck their economy. Yeah. Like, so I don't know. I, I think it's a, I think it's a kind of a crazy, a, a crazy thing. And, you know, I, I wouldn't, I don't know if I would trust the Washington Post or like the New York Times, like the Washington Post gets, Bezos gets ridiculous contracts with like deep state, uh, CIA types of military for his like hosting and all that. Like he's always going for those contracts. So he has a lot to lose by putting there. And they, you know, the New York Times didn't call out those 51 intelligence people that uh, reported against the Hunter Biden laptop. So, you know, what's to say that he was going to trust them or that these sources would, were, were not scared that if you went to those outlets that they might somehow be outed in some way. I mean, I, I, I could see that there would be a fear in that. No, yeah, I think those are good points. Um, yeah, I also think, yeah, I, I wouldn't assume either that somehow it would be more credible for the New York Times to have gotten the story. Um, because, like I said earlier, there will, will be there will, there will be certain institutional roadblocks within the New York Times to get it published that could dilute the story or um, sort of diminish the um, impact of it, or maybe eliminate certain details because start. they're claiming that there's some kind of like national security reason why something can't be divulged, just like happened with that Washington Post article earlier today. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that that's right. But anyway, just food for thought. I'll uh, get us so the other people can go. But uh, great stuff, always, as always. All right. Thanks, John. Uh, Fahim. Fahim, are you there? Got to unmute bottom left-hand corner if you're not familiar. Oh, no Fahim. Okay. Uh, Joseph, and then we'll uh, wrap up unless Fahim wants to return. How's it going? I can't hear you that well. Can you hear me now? Uh, I think so. Okay. Yeah, that's better. All right. So uh, I found the entire uh, Seymour Hearst story to be, I mean, obviously everyone's shocked by it, but, I mean, we all knew on some level that America was involved. <clears throat> Doesn't take rocket science to believe that. But what I find very interesting is um, the sheer audacity of it. I mean, this was literally an act of international terrorism. The three culprits, Tori Newland, Jake Sullivan, and Anthony Blinken, apparently, um, you know, treating Germany in this fashion. And if uh, Hirsch's uh, reporting is correct, then the very prime minister of Germany knew about it and was involved in it. And there's not much of a reaction, um, but I will say this. Well, wait, the prime uh, minister of are, Germany. Yeah. Yes, Olaf Scholz was named as somebody who was on board with getting rid uh, of the Nordstrom 
uh, of Nordstrom Pipeline. Right, but it's not, it's not asserted that he was involved in this operation to blow up the pipeline. Uh, so did I misread that? Um, I got to double check. I don't, I think. It's implied they, that he had some knowledge of it. Um, Maybe I'm reading in, Well, you got to be careful about what you say is implied because as somebody who is always told that I imply things that I don't <laughs> actually write, I have to uh, sometimes push back because they're, you know, in a story like this, it's going to be worded very yeah. Precisely and intentionally. Um, as if I remember, and I should read it again, but they uh, Hirsch goes through a joint press conference that Biden and Schultz had where Biden made the now infamous comment that, you know, one way or another, there won't be a, won't be a Nord Stream pipeline if Russia launches the war. And Schultz is on board with that proposition. Um, it doesn't mean that Schultz, I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing right. stated that Schultz was read in or in any way sort of operationally involved in the actual sort of, uh, sabotage mission, which would be a whole different thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, all I know is that I believe multiple countries in the area, uh, investigated it. And all they could tell us is that it wasn't Russia. Um, so uh, you have to think that they know something. I mean, if it wasn't Russia, I mean, if it wasn't the Russians doing it, who the hell was it? Well, there was an interesting um, and, there was an interesting story, of course, which got barely any attention in the U.S. media. But um, in Der Spiegel, a couple months ago, I forget when, maybe it was in October, November, where. They reported that the German intelligence services got received a warning from the CIA over the summer that Ukraine may seek to target critical infrastructure, um, such as a pipeline. Um, So that was planted out there for public consumption. Um, I don't know. Uh, It's plausible that Ukraine, I mean, I don't think that whatever Hirsch wrote in this particular article is like the full, you know, uh, scope of who might have been aware of it or had right. some role in it. So it's possible that you know, the uh, you know this the secret sort of special ops wing of the Ukraine government might have been you know, briefed on it or had some awareness of this particular operation. Maybe played like an ancillary role or who knows. Yeah. Um, my, my, my main point, though, is that it's obvious that there are people in charge of our foreign policy establishment that are completely above the law, above any checks and balances, uh, and above any sort of transparency, then they, they're not serving the interests of the American people. So my question then is, so what is this about? I mean, it's not about human rights because... You know, Jake Sullivan and Victoria Nuland and uh, Anthony Blinken, they're not breaking ties with the state of Israel for having uh, a government that is to the far right of the Putin government. They're not Saudi Arabia. Yes. Well, with Saudi Arabia, they'll actually like, you know, like the U.S. government, I believe, stopped selling weapons or they're going to deliver weapons. But they also, 
you know, reprimanded them in, in the public eye over the uh, the journalist that was killed, and Saudi Arabia is drifting. To yeah, the, but I mean, they're not the, the they're they're not severing the uh, extensive military right. ties that exist between the United States and Saudi Arabia. They're not right. um, they're not abrogating arms deals that are already in progress. Um, they're not they're not they're not taking all the action they could. I mean, to reprimand in public is one thing, and yeah, it, it has some effect. It's true, but, but there, there's plenty it, that they could do if they were so, actually serious about like the, both human rights in Saudi Arabia that they're not doing. Well, let me tell you a story here. The, the National Security Minister of Israel, uh, Ben Giver, literally would celebrate the uh, day that mass shooter Baruch Goldstein killed several Palest- like Muslim worshippers in a Brenton Tarrant-style shooting. This man is now the National Security Minister of the State of Israel. And the people that are lecturing everyone on human rights, like Newland and Sullivan and Blinken, don't seem to have as big of a problem with him. And someone just now is saying, oh, why would we do this to an ally? Why would we do this to an ally? Well, it's very obvious that there's some tensions there uh, where the reality of the matter is that the German opinion, German sovereignty, and the German people are simply irrelevant and, and also, you know, they're another, an occupied uh, nation. America actually occupies Germany militarily. You yeah. can say, oh, they like it there, this or that. But at the end of the day, they certainly don't behave like a sovereign nation. Yeah, I'm going to uh, Germany next week, actually, for the Munich Security Conference. So I'll uh, report from the oh, uh, occupation zone. Uh, yeah. Oh, um, Jesus. So, oh, uh, but oh. another thing, I mean, and, uh, on top of human rights, the other platitude you hear all the time is territorial integrity, right, and sovereignty. And this is another. This is a whole rabbit hole. But I really do think there is nowhere near sufficient just popular understanding of what happened with the U.S. slash NATO war in Yugoslavia in 1999, Kosovo War, sometimes understood as. I mean, it's total. How that conflict culminated is just totally antithetical to these nostrums we hear all the time about territorial integrity and sovereignty. The <laughs> deal that the that NATO and the U, U.S. eventually struck with um, Milosevic, the end of the war, and it ultimately led to you know, his uh, ouster and him being um, sent to The Hague, it precluded that Kosovo would be um, extricated from Serbia, right? It right. Put it under UN administration. Uh, that was one of the provisions of the UN resolution that then was passed by the Security Council and that, that governed Kosovo. Uh, because it said, and it, even, even in the text of that UN resolution, so international law we're all supposed to be very reverent of too, right? Yeah. It said that the territorial of Serbia will not be violated. Then what ha- eventually happened? In 2008, Kosovo, the statelet within Serbia, under you know a military rule, um, including U.S. military, unilaterally declares independence. Right? Then the United States, the U.K., all the usual suspects, they rush yeah. to recognize <laughs> that unilateral declaration of independence, right? Um, they put up a nice big that, Bill Clinton statue in the middle of their capital. You ever see that? Yep. Yeah, yeah. 
What right. a joke of a country. <laughs> uh, so it's not just that they violated just the principle of the territorial integrity or sovereignty of Serbia over this particular part of its territory. They violated the letter of the law that they signed on to that was supposed to govern the jurisdictional status of Kosovo in recognizing that Declaration of Independence. And now Kosovo is, you know, ostensibly an independent country, although lots of countries don't recognize it still. Like, um, yeah, there's a lot of that uh, going on. Like Russia and China and so forth. Um, So it's just such a glaring uh, contradiction that um, totally undermines this whole idea that territorial integrity as such is this exalted principle that guides, you know, the behavior of the, quote, West and the preservation of the international rules-based order, right? But there's just not really any popular awareness of it. And Well, where do you go to to, to, to But Russia is very aware mediated. of it. Russia is yeah. very aware of it. Look at the go, speech the that Putin gave on the night of the, the, yeah. the invasion was launched in February last year. There's a whole paragraph that he gives about Kosovo, and I'm sorry, I'm not endorsing Putin. You know, I shouldn't even have to say that, but like everything that Putin says about what happened with that is actually just factually accurate. Yeah. Um, and it is true that it's a total just you know massive uh, undercutting of these stated principles that are supposedly adhered to by well, the U.S. and the broader here's, West. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. You know, Henry Kissinger gave the famous quote. Uh, no, no American ally, uh, you know, something to the tune of like no American ally comes out of it alive or something, or, uh, I, I'm probably butchering the quote. And, uh, you know, this gets to the point of NATO. You know, I see a lot of people say that NATO after the cold war, uh, the Soviet union falls and, um, NATO needs a reason to exist. Um, that's true to an extent, maybe. But the primary purpose of NATO is not merely to destroy Russia or even contain it. Primary purpose of NATO is to prevent European, Western Europe from becoming sovereign. And this goes back to why they, they kick Germany around. They're starving. They're uh, freezing the country up, uh, uh, destroying its manufacturing and everything, basically looting Germany. That's what the Inflation Reduction Act is. I mean, we can support it as Americans, but... They're literally looting German industry um, and also exporting American inflation to it, uh, to these countries. So what, what I'm getting at is that um, I think that the real problem with Russia, you know, 30, 30 something years after communism falls, real problem with Russia, which offered to join NATO, offered to join the European Union, did try to be diplomatic with the West. Well, and it, I don't know if it offered to uh, join NATO. I mean, they, I'm not sure what you're referring to there, but there was a, t- a period they, they, um, they where they were they, like they, they had like observer status within NATO right. in that like they, they attended meetings and um, yeah, they you know were to be part of it. Yeah, yeah. And and so here's here's what I think is going on, Michael, is that the U.S. government feels that if Western Europe with its industry and creativity and, you know, um, abilities of, of, of ingenuity and so on, combines with the seemingly bottomless well of Russian resources, particularly cheap gas, uh, but also other uh, precious resources they have, that essentially that makes America irrelevant in Europe. 
I mean, German sovereignty, if Germany gets its gas from Russia and it gets uh, all, you know, it can export to China and it can get finished goods from China in return, it can get uh, uh, agriculture from other countries, you know, wheat from Russia, um, that essentially can make America a, a choice rather than a necessity. So blowing up the Nord Stream pipeline, like part of my theory, this is a little bit of a conspiracy theory, but part of my theory about why, you know, NATO at the bare minimum made it really hard to find a diplomatic solution between Ukraine and Russia is that, you know, the U.S. empire is shrinking. It has to shrink. It can't afford all of its holdings. And it's deciding that it wants to make its last stand, like in the game Risk, make its last stand in Western Europe. It needs to keep Western Europe. And if Western Europe has a choice to deal with Russians, then they're afraid that they might lose it. Um, th yeah. That's what I see. In some, what I've been hearing stuff from people that are going to foreign policy schools, basically training to be the next generation of assholes. Um, <laughs> and they're all being taught this type of stuff. Like, you know, we can't allow Russia to... Uh, you know, uh, have uh, resource relations with Western Europe because this could lead to authoritarian figures uh, coming to power, uh, a drift away from democracy, blah, 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 blah. All that is code word for these countries might just leave the American sphere. They might just choose to do it. And they're having trouble getting them, prying them from China because if they don't trade with China, they're pretty screwed, right? So... But the U.S. is still trying, you know. So this is, I yeah. think, what the what at the end of the day this is about. Well, I don't know if you recall, but for the past couple of years, uh, Macron has been saying that you know Europe and you know France has been making sort of gestures in this direction, you know, off and on for decades. But you know, Macron kind of carried on that tradition uh, within the past couple of years and said that you the Europe needs its own sort of self-sustaining um, kind of security uh, infrastructure independent from the U.S. Not that Macron threatened to withdraw from NATO or anything, which, you know, France has done in the past, actually. Well, de Gaulle. With, well, yeah, De Gaulle withdrew from the command structure of NATO. He'd actually withdraw from the alliance. Um, but you know, so Macron didn't even propose anything along those lines. But he did say that, you know, Europe needs more autonomy in its sort of uh, – military capabilities uh, separate from the U.S. And, yeah, if nothing else, clearly this whole episode since two, uh, February 2002 kind of negates that as any kind of tenable prospect um, because the, the U.S. is so, so obviously the prime mover um, in, in all of this. I do think, though, that when you talk about the purpose of NATO – I mean, there are different levels to it. Like on in on an abstract level, yeah. I mean, there is something to that theory where the U.S. kind of needs Western Europe in its, let's say, sphere of influence, um, or you know, desires Western uh, Europe to remain in that sphere of influence where it's sort of subordinate to the U.S. and uh, Germany, in particular, having this uh, trading and kind of economic relationship with with Russia, maybe. Uh, that to some degree, I think you know that's a factor. But you know, one thing I find, especially having gone like to the NATO summit last year and different events like this, and like reading some of the 
press and, uh, you know, the sort of industry internal sort of uh, dialogues. Right. If I had to tell you what the primary purpose of NATO is, I would almost say that it's just like a professional organization. I mean, look at what happened with the Baltic states when they joined NATO in 2004, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, immediately, there was like a, a, a gigantic flurry of new think tanks and uh, arms industry sort of um, suppliers. And, you know, it's a huge economic boon to at least sectors of like an economy like Estonia that they can now have, um, you know, be selling drones to Portugal and, you know, uh, Canada and have all these interconnected security arrangements. It almost produces an entirely new professional class because every NATO country has its own, like, dopey little dopey think tank um, that, like, has these relationships with other think tanks and the think tanks get, you know, funded by the arms producers and, you know, the whole sort of commingled apparatus. I, I mean, um, so, I so to... that, that, that I think is kind of, it's almost like a banal explanation, really, if I had well, to give you what I think is sort of like the essential well, reason for NATO's existence. It's like, see, it's a self-perpetuating institution like any other. I, I, I'm very, I'm very skeptical of these explanations. I mean, they're plausible, but the problem here, um, Mike, is that, you know, the, NATO is based off of the Atlantic Charter, um, which was founded in 1941. Um, you know, it was during World War II. It was an anti-German, yeah. anti-Italian. When Roosevelt met with, with Churchill off, off the course, uh, off the coast yes. of uh, Newfoundland. I mean, this is the real founding of NATO. Okay, later on it got a different, uh, different structure or whatever, but this is the real founding of NATO, and the specific purpose of NATO was to fight Germany. Uh, remember, they were allies with the Soviet Union at this point. So this was always the purpose. It's a, you know, if you want to be very uh, charitable, it's, a, you know, uh, like an Anglo-Saxon um, fear of Germany. Now, of course, you can say what you want about Germans in World War II, but that fear came before World War II and lives to this day to some extent. And it's just a fear of competition, frankly. And I, I find that this is actually the common red line, the red thread, um, you know, is this fear of Germany becoming a superpower and competing with Britain and America. Um, so I, I don't think that these like self-banal, self-perpetual military industrial complex Explanations for things. I mean, I, this is deeply ideological. Well, I don't think I'm not, I don't think, I'm not, I don't think say that's the sole explanation. I think it, again, there are layers of explanation that you could, I think, reasonably posit. But you know, for the average sort of NATO bureaucrat, let's say from I don't know Belgium, they don't have a oh. vested interest in the United States sort of you know keeping Germany under its thumb. They're in it because it's a a professional class sort of system that they entered into that they ascribe to the imperatives of in part because it's the basis for their sort of career and their sustenance. And, and you um, know what else is really interesting about the Atlantic Charter is that the Soviets were um, sort of unofficial signatories. They at least adopted its principles. And what's so hilarious, you're talking about the hypocrisy of it all. 
Uh, there are tons of uh, different uh, tenets of the Atlantic Charter about imperialism and ending the, the world empires. Meanwhile, the British were its founders. <laughs> yeah, and I, I did it. I did a, I did a big. Um, I did a big ten thousand word essay on this a couple months ago because uh, I was on a World War II kick. Um, but when that Atlantic Charter was adopted by Churchill and um, Roosevelt in August of 1941, that's also when Churchill said. He said this in um, documents that were released 30 years later. Um, that's also when Churchill says that Roosevelt told him that the United States was seeking to enter the war and would get more aggressive in its sort of warfare, undeclared warfare against Germany. Um, and then within a matter of weeks, you had the first instances of actual Warfare on uh, between U.S. Uh, vessels in the um, the yep. North Atlantic and German U-boats, which actually the U.S. initiated. Um, so, what do you think? You know, another thing too is that you know a lot of people that talk about um, Russia as a sort of um, you know as a, as a genuine threat to American interests, but um, you know I, I don't. I'm not a China hawk. I think it's all stupid. Um, I think that America is actually the one that antagonizes China as well as Russia. Um, but with that said, you know, if that supposed spy balloon is real, I mean, I don't think the Russians would even dream of doing something like that. Um, and yet they're not so gung-ho about China, right? So there's got to be something here other than, you know, uh, self-perpetuating policy wonks. There's, there's, another, there's another explanation, and I think it's simply – that they don't like the fact Russians are, you know, European Christians that are not facing, uh, they're not as liberal as the West. I mean, they're more liberal than the Israelis, right? They have multiculturalism <laughs> and they have uh, all kinds of toler, like hate speech or whatever, but not uh, liberal enough. Well, they have they have they have, uh, they have entire units of their military that where they uh, praise Allah, the yes. Chechens. And, and frankly, the Muslims there appear to be the tenacious, well, most tenacious fighters. They're relatively well integrated, considering the recent history with Chechnya. Like, so, like you know, Russia is a multicultural country. Um, you know, they have they have like a kind of Mongol people in the government. They have representation. It's not token. Right. It's, it is right. The, uh, isn't the the, the, but, the defense minister? Is that his title? Yeah. Shoigu? He's, yeah. um, He's I, I don't. Yeah. Yeah. So it doesn't really make sense. It's really just a fear of, of Europe becoming sovereign, independent and just ignoring America, you know, because America's power is mostly its soft power. American culture, American products, American uh, you know, ideas, California ideology, all these things. And these things have really lost their luster in the last 30 years. They are not – they don't pique people's interests or really uh, inspire the admiration of the world anymore. And so they're clearly now resorting to hard power. And the hard power is uh, literal mafia tactics where, you know, Victoria Newland is going to bomb your vital infrastructure if you don't <laughs> do what she says. So, you know, we're just run by – She's going to push the red button. I mean, you know what? You know what, Michael? You don't think these people – would initiate a nuclear confrontation if they felt like it would be, you know, I mean, 
Just look at the boldness. I mean, I, I, I think, I think that there. Stream. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I think given the audacity of the Nord Stream operation, there's nothing or almost nothing I would rule out, because I think, especially like a Newland, I mean, her whole life seems like it revolves around this. Absolutely, actually, you know what? This might be a bit of a controversial statement, and some people might not accept this. But I actually, you know take Victoria Newland at her word in the sense that I think that they're in, that her incredibly zealous ideological convictions on this subject are real. Uh, I do think that they're Absolutely. ideologues. I think they're completely well ideologically case- zealous on this and they're you know when you have ideological zealots, you know like whether it was the neoconservatives under Bush or these people um, at the helm, you know, well, don't also, don't rule anything out. Well, you know the theory on Victoria Newland and why, like the timing of the Ukraine coup. So, what came not long before the Ukraine coup? Uh, it was the Russian intervention in Syria. So the Russians basically no, say, "Yeah, no, you got the you got the chronology wrong there because the Russian intervention in Syria began in September 2015." I just watched actually a BBC series, Putin versus the West, which is you know ah, yes. a little dodgy on this, but that, yes, but that, that, no, no, but the, that yeah. was the official formal entry. However, do you remember? When That's they, when the air campaign began. Yes, yes, but do you remember? And this wasn't widely reported, but it did come out. This was in 2014. When Obama went out there and he said, okay, they crossed the red lines with the chemical weapons. And he began talking about a military action in 2014. And do you know why he hit the brakes? Two, this was 2013. This was 2013. Because <laughs> I actually Harvard, covered Harvard. I covered yes. the uh, – yeah, in September Russian 2013. Navy, the Russian Navy yeah, yeah. was well, well, Putin. That's when Putin, Putin wrote an op-ed in the New York Times right during this yes. period saying that he was going to – Intervene, and there was going to be yes. an agreement that would be brokered to dispose I, I of mean, chemical weapons remember, in Syria. You remember, yeah. like the British, the British government and the American government. Yeah, Parliament they, voted it down. Well, they voted it down because it was a "hold me back, bros" moment. Because they, <laughs> I mean, what, I mean, they did. You know, in the U.S., they did the same thing, and it was that they were actually legitimately planning to intervene, like in Libya. The Russians mobilized their military and said, "You're not coming in here because there's going to be a war." There's going to be a world war if you touch this. And so they pissed their pants and ran back. And who's in charge of the regime change project in Syria? Well, Victoria Nuland was one of the point people in that project. And what a surprise. Was she? I yes, didn't know she was. Syria portfolio. Oh, yeah. Go look it up. We're going back right. to 2000. Doesn't surprise me. Yeah. yeah. And so after the Russians step in and block these people from – Regime change, you know, promoting, again, that Israeli interest. Um, suddenly, you get a coup in Ukraine and a fucking phony manufactured crisis there. Um, I don't think that's a coincidence. I've actually talked to other foreign policy people that privately say they think these are related, but don't have, like, the hard proof. And, uh, you know, but, you know, I think these are related. The Russians flex their muscles. Well, because they're both in some sense like a proxy conflict with Russia. Right between the U.S. and Russia, rather, um, they weren't so expecting kind the of, Russians yeah. to assert themselves in Syria to the extent they did, though. That yeah. is absolutely a fact. They were not expecting that, and when they did, but that, like, okay, but that, but that came in 2015. Like when yes. the thing that the thing that everyone was taken off 
scarred by was when Russia actually did a sort of a full-fledged aerial bombing campaign in Syria beginning in that was September the next step. But the fact that the Russians were, were standing up to America directly going back to 2013 into 2014, that they were literally saying to America, no, that is what I think pushed these people off the edge about Russia. I mean, it's got to be, man. Because yeah. ever since that happened, you'll notice, ever since the Russians started getting more active internationally, the regime change projects the U.S. does – aren't going anywhere for the most part, like Venezuela, right? Yeah, and that's when, and I don't know if you remember, but there was a whole push, and I'm not commenting on the you know, merits of this necessarily, but I'm just recalling that there was a whole push in um, 2016 uh, during the Aleppo campaign to accuse Russia of you know genocide. That was the first time that Russia was really being, pre-Ukraine, obviously, uh, but that's when, like, the drumbeat started to kind of get Russia labeled a perpetuator yeah. of genocide. I, and now we see that, this, you know, obviously this full bore now. This whole Cold War with China and Russia is merely that they're getting in the way of Washington imperial expansion. I mean, if you remember Venezuela, that was real ham-fisted. They had, like, 90-year-old uh, Elliot uh, – uh, what's his name? Uh, the Elliot Abrams, Abrams. yeah. They had this like uh, like this fossil, yeah, fo- <laughs> fossil from the Reagan administration. Yeah, trying to overthrow the Venezuelan government, and you know it's pretty obvious the CIA with Marco Rubio tweeting frantically. Right, it's pretty obvious the CIA was involved in sabotaging their power grid to cause a blackout in the country. But guess what? The Chinese came in and they immediately fixed it for them, and it really took the winds out of the sails of the Guiados and all those other types. So this is what this Cold War is about, is that the U.S. can't break its own rules internationally anymore because Russia and China are strong enough to tell them no. And so this is what it amounts to. It's just uh, an empire that is simply unable to exert its will. That's why I don't think it's it's about military-industrial complex or anything because, you know. Actually, just uh, I read – I was talking about Kosovo earlier. I just read this – Sorry about the sirens in the background, but I just read this uh, MIT Jesus. study on. I just, are you in New, are, what are you in New York? <laughs> I remember in Jersey City. There's always just oh, chaos and sirens everywhere. It's so annoying. Oh, I, have to keep the window, I have to keep the window open even in the winter because the air circulation in the building yep. is screwed up. It's a mess. Oh, but, um, never mind. Yeah. Um, but in the Kosovo intervention, they were in this MIT study. They note that the only two you know powers that really objected to the undertaking of that intervention where it's Russia and China. But, you know, Russia at that point was at a low point of its power, so it couldn't do anything to actually oppose the NATO intervention. And China um, also, you know, was underdeveloped enough that it also wasn't in a position to actually do anything. Um, and so, like, it, it seems like that kind of operation was sort of unique in that it only could have happened under the condition where there's just not the, – the only two major powers who might have been in a position to actively oppose it were not yet powerful enough to do anything of actual significance. And that's clearly changing to some extent. Yeah, um, I mean – and it's also – there's a lot of little things going on that people – are noticing that if you follow foreign policy, you will notice uh, Myanmar, right? I mean, there's something going on there, and the Chinese put the kibosh on that. The Chinese literally just, I don't know what they did, but they obviously did something 
to stop uh, the U.S. operation there, the foreign operation there. Uh, Nicaragua, right? I mean, people, speaking of the Cold War, Daniel Ortega is, I believe, still in power. Um, yeah, he's still in power. Or, or, yeah, he's still, he got into power somehow. He's been in the there US since immediately, uh, 07. Yeah, the, the, the U.S. has been trying to get him out of power, trying to uh, sanction him and, you know, do little color revolutions in the country and stuff. Well, the Russians just come in and they, they train the Nicaraguan intelligence on how to fight these things and it's not going anywhere. I mean, you could go, I mean, look, I mean, I won't even get into Africa. Um, you know, so it's just over. What about the Middle East? Okay. Iran. Iran took the maximum pressure sanctions from Trump, literally trying to create a man-made famine in Iran on yeah. orders really for the interests of the state of Israel. And here's what happened. The Russians and the Chinese simply made up for all the, you know, for a lot of the lost trade and resources they needed. And particularly now, especially, they're trading lots of, you know, like fourth generation fighters with them. And, and didn't, didn't Russia and Iran just connect their banking system with whatever their equivalent of SWIFT yes. is? Yes, yes, yes. So, yeah. I mean, this explains everything, okay? I mean, it's just, it's not just in Ukraine. There's a, there's a proxy wars between America and Russia all over the world. And frankly, Russia is mostly on the side of the people simply who want to be left alone. Like the Iranians just want to be left alone. Okay. And the Russians are actually helping them out. The Chinese as well signed a huge, like $200 billion deal with them that basically makes Iran giving the Iran nuclear deal a second chance completely moot. It's like, you know, they, there's a faction in Iran that would prefer that, but at the end of the day, they can live without it. So this is what this is about. Like the, the sanctions embargoes don't work anymore. Military, like direct military interventions become more complicated because now the next country America tries to invade. Guess what? They're going to have Russian missiles. They're going to have Russian tanks. They're going to have Russian anti-aircraft. It's a whole new ball game. I mean, well, right. I mean, people always talk about how Russia made this like grave miscalculation and the military's in shambles. Well, I mean, they are now vastly expanding their military. They now have like operational experience that they wouldn't have otherwise had. Um, they're ramping up their industrial uh, production. You know, they're you know becoming, uh, you could argue, more powerful militarily, despite whatever setbacks might have happened. In Ukraine, just given the mobilization, I mean, it would have almost been unthinkable. I don't know if unthinkable. It would have been you know, difficult to imagine that there would have been the sort of mass sort of nationwide mobilization that Putin ordered in uh, September uh, prior to this war. But once they've done it, it you know, they sort of habituates the population in, into that and, you know, makes the military sort of more societally prominent. And, you know, that has long lasting effects. I, I don't see any reason to believe that that would be sort of rolled back anytime soon, um, you know, apart from if, you know, the U.S. does eventually achieve in, uh, some sort of engineering of uh, regime change in Russia, which is a, no, man, a, a bit they, of a pipe dream, but another, you know, not, yeah, without, not, not mean, impossible. The main, the main benef- benefit Russia is going to get out of this is the de-Americanization of its society. Um, you know, like the, the companies from America – Social media, Apple, you know, all these companies pulling out McDonald's, 
you know, this is actually how the real reason they took down the Soviet Union. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't nuclear missiles. It was rock music and uh, blue jeans. And by de-Americanizing their young people in particular and making men out of them in this war, like the Russians are going to come out of this totally different, totally different. And, you know, from there, who knows what they're going to do? They're going to probably build alternative world model. And now the uh, like the uh, McDonald's franchise in Moscow, which had to give, you know, 10% to corporate headquarters is now just, you know, putting out the same product, but keep 10%. <laughs> How and now they call it, now they call it like it now they call it like McTasties or something. Yeah. But I mean this is actually something that you know losing a a a culture like that. I mean China is the same, right? China is also rapidly de-americanizing. Um this is going to put them on the back foot. You know they they kind of blew their wad in Ukraine. Um I'm not sure how much more juice they can squeeze out of this. But you know, they, they successfully fought the Russians to a standstill there. But they also, the Russians also revealed that you can actually go into another country and do whatever and, and, and defend your own interests if you want in your borders. And like half of the world won't actually go along with sanctions. Yeah. You know? Well, I'm I mean, not so sure about the standstill thing. Very. Because it seems like multiple parties I mean, even if you look at what they're saying in europe Zelensky just went to the uk and then to uh france and they're calling for you know they're they're they don't seem content to just accept a quote standstill it seems like they want some climactic resolution to the war within the next couple months or something so i mean much yet do, remains to be gonna, seen they're going to do a couple of big offensives it's going to get ugly but i mean they're eventually going to run out of steam um, and I think that, uh, you know, this is something if, like if the Russians, this is the calculation they're making in Washington, like us laymen, we're just looking at it. Like, why would you risk nuclear war over which side of the border the Donbass is on? But, you know, people are completely missing the point there. The point here is that you could tell Washington to go fuck itself and get away with it. And once that seal is broken, once that taboo is broken, once that, is allowed to happen and someone can do it and get away with it, everyone is going to do it, okay? The Iranians are not going to sit there and take Israeli strikes or the Mossad assassinating its scientists. The Syrians are going to start shooting down their planes. The, um, the Hezbollah will get active. The Chinese will start getting more active with Taiwan. Like, it, it, it's going to be like... Like, basically, Washington is going to have to learn to live in a world of nations. Yeah. And that's I know what you mean. I'm, I'm always kind of skeptical of these grand theories about how, like, uh, you know, the however the territorial border is drawn, the Donbass has these, like, wider reverberational effects on geographically disparate areas um, because of, like, the lessons that are supposedly learned or these, like, intangible inferences that other countries somehow draw from like the lesson of the Ukraine war because like you see you you see like you see like similar theories in the reverse where it's like if the United States doesn't defeat Russia and Ukraine or if Ukraine doesn't prevail then you know that emboldens China and they're going to take Taiwan I mean mean, who who knows it's just like it's just kind of like uh it's sort of like uh yeah it's just sort of almost like psychobabble 
It, it is it is speculative, but the point is though is that those countries are justified in taking that action. Like, why should China tolerate an American military buildup on its border? Like, why should they? So it's not that they're going to be. It's not that these countries are going to do something like the Iraq War, right? China's not going to invade Iraq or something. What I'm saying is that they're going to assert themselves in their own in their own spheres of influence that are genuinely theirs, and that's what it is. The U.S. the U.S. government wants to actually be able to tell people on all the continents what to do. This is actually a vital, uh, a vital like lifeline for our economic system. Once they can't do that anymore, Michael, um, like this is just going to be Brazil with nukes. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's true. Well, hey, that, 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 might, that, that, might, that, that kind of sounds fun. So maybe we have something to look forward to. <laughs> I don't All right, know, Joseph. Uh, I'm going to uh, I'll, I'll get going. Thanks for uh, your insight, as always. Um, yep. And uh, yeah, thanks everybody for tuning in. And we'll uh, reconvene. Like I said, I'm going to be in uh, Germany next week, so I'll, try, I'll do something from there, and I'll uh, give you updates on what the uh, Munich uh, security establishment, well, I, you know, the world security.